Superchargers, headlights, and more. With over 122 million parts, eBay Motors has everything you need to maintain your vehicle and level it up to peak performance. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, your part is guaranteed to fit your ride every time or your money back. Stay on your A-game with all the parts you need at the prices you want. It's easy to bring home huge wins. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. See ebaymotors.com. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. From the territories to Titan Towers to TNA and all points in between, he's seen and done it all. And now he's here to share the real story behind wrestling's biggest moments, controversies, and characters. The MLW Radio Network presents Something to Wrestle with Bruce Pritchard. Hey, it's Conrad Thompson, and you're listening to Something to Wrestle With. Bruce Pritchard. Bruce, what's going on, man? It's a very special Black Friday edition of the show here, and uh, a lot of podcasts are doing best ofs or taking the week off, or they've got something in the can. But, man, we're taping something brand new, despite what all the rumors and innuendo are show's not in the can i'm sick and we're still powering through roll tide uh the man was vader the man they call vader that was our topic last week Uh, i got a lot of great feedback on this one bruce what are people saying to you about it you know it's crazy because i just got a lot of positive feedback for the most part i think that is due to the simple fact that the host of this show does research that would rival, well, I can't say Rand McNally because that's the map people, isn't it? <laughs> I'm thinking of uh, Encyclopedia Britannica. That, there there, there's one for the books. Um, now we have Wikipedia and the Internet. Back in the day, we had the Encyclopedia Britannica. But uh, Conrad does his homework and is extremely thorough. And for the most part, that was the compliments that I got on it, and I'm very appreciative of that. And we... We love it. We listen to all of it, and if there's any loose ends we leave, we try to address them, but I really didn't get any. I did have a couple of loose ends that I missed somehow. Uh, I need to apologize. Vader came back in 2005 very briefly for Taboo Tuesday 2005. Jonathan Coachman was supposed to square off against Stone Cold Steve Austin, and in his corner he put Goldust and Vader to kind of have his back. Uh, That wasn't the best showing for Vader, but he was there. And then I'm sure we'll talk about this at another point 
Austin gets wind that the creative would have Coachman going over, and suddenly he's unavailable for that show. Uh, so when he becomes unavailable, Batista steps in. Uh, Batista has a match with Coachman. Vader's involved. Um, and that's kind of it for his swan song. Uh, he did briefly do uh, an appearance where he was uh, taking on um, with the other WWE legends, Heath Slater, a few years ago. But nothing really of substance. The only other thing uh, that we missed was Scott Hall. And this was something that came up on a message board. Scott Hall had asked about going to Japan when he was trying to renegotiate his WWF deal to try to see if there was a way he could make more money. He approached Vince and said, Hey, you know, what can I do? I feel like my income's plateaued. Is there an opportunity for me to do something else? And Vince assured him that no, he was doing everything right. And he countered with, Hey, if I'm doing everything right, how can I make more money? Various explanations back and forth. And one of the things that he asked for, if you believe the rumors and innuendo, was that Scott wanted to work in Japan and thought, hey, if I could get some time off here, that would free me up to go have some dates in Japan and offset the income that he felt like he should be making. But he was turned down for that request. And the reason this is topical now and here is that would have happened in late 95 or early 96 at the exact same time that Vader was working out a deal with the WWE that would include some trips to Japan. So what say you, Bruce, you were there kind of walk us through what the fundamental difference between yes to Vader and no to Scott Hall would be. Well, because they were asking for two different things and Scott Hall was looking to be able to go to Japan and do, you know, three to five week tours a couple times a year. And Vader was looking to be able to go over and work with our approval. And when I say our approval, we also were approving the opponents that Vader was going to be in the ring with, and they weren't going to be long, week-long, two, three-week-long tours. They were one-offs, and we had to approve everything. Scott was looking to go over there and do uh, tours, and that was something that where we wouldn't be able to approve his opponents every single night of the tour, and the chance of him getting hurt at some point and not being able to perform for us on the backside was something that he didn't want to do. But being able to approve the opponents for Vader and or send a match to Japan, it was a different situation. American stars have been rumored over the years to have made uh, 10 to 20, sometimes even in excess of that, $1,000 per week on those Japanese tours. Does that number hold water with you? Sure, top guys did, without a doubt. Okay, uh, before we move on, anything you want to add? I feel like I at least needed to mention the Vader Taboo Tuesday thing. Any specific memories about uh, reaching out to Vader in 2005 for that? Was it always planned to be a one-off? Was it let's just see what he looks like and see what we can do from here? And he showed up heavy? Or do you have any recollections as to why that didn't do more? No, it, it was strictly as a one-off. It was just kind of a special appearance, a one-time thing, a special attraction type deal. So there was no plans to use him beyond that. And sometimes those things are you bring people in for a one-off and they blow you away in a good way. Then we may go back and say, hmm, let's bring them back and do something with them. Obviously, that didn't happen with Vader at that time. This is a housekeeping, a complete show, and nothing but housekeeping from our most downloaded show of all time. It really was our most downloaded show of all time. And, uh, man, we play the hits. And TNA was a hit for us, so we're going to go back to uh, – 
what brought us to the dance, so to speak. And I'm excited. If only, this. if only they could have as many viewers as we did downloads and they probably wouldn't be doing so bad, huh? Well, that's a little mean, uh, I, but true. Okay. Cruel, well, but fair. Uh, this is going to be, uh, the third time we have taped TNA part two. We did the first <laughs> one when it was fresh. Uh, I still think we probably should have kept that one, but through, uh, some arm wrestling, I lost that bet. And now we're doing it for the third time. So that we're doing, we've done this this many times because we're a little scattered, uh, because there's so many little loose ends. So we're going to try to play the hits and we're going to hit the high spots. It's going to be a little bit of a word association and we're just going to hit on some of the hot topics and let's get into a hot one right now. Uh, lots of rumors and innuendo. We teased, we were going to talk about it. Uh, I got lots and lots of direct messages and text messages and private messages about this. Nobody really wants to talk about it in public. Uh, but on the message boards, man, it's there. Let's talk about sex, baby, uh, in TNA. And there's lots of rumors and innuendo, and I kind of want to rapid fire some of this and just have you kind of set the record straight. Uh, to be clear, everything I'm about to say is rumors and innuendo. I wasn't there. I don't have any firsthand knowledge of anything. I'm not saying anything happened. I am simply espousing rumors and innuendo to Bruce so he can shit on it or verify it. Uh, we've done this forever, but I feel like when we're going to talk about sex, people get a little more sensitive. So here we go. Uh, Bob Ryder is a name that has been floated around. I did not have sex with Bob Ryder. Okay. Next name. <laughs> okay. So Bob Ryder, there's lots of uh, rumors and innuendo, uh, that would link Bob Ryder with certain talent and some adult activities in the early days of TNA, whether it was the naturals or, uh, Chris Harris or abyss or the young bucks. There's a variety of names that are linked there. And I'm not saying anything happened at all. And then all of this is a complete and total BS, but haters going to hate rumors. Going to rumors are going to be rumors. What, what did you see? What did you witness? What did you have firsthand knowledge of? What can you confirm or deny? Well, I'll tell you what I witnessed and what I have firsthand knowledge of is that Bob Ryder worked tirelessly busted his ass for the company and did a great job at what he did. And, you know, I heard the same rumors, but when you look at it is the, the total picture and it's like, Oh, well, so-and-so stayed in Bob's room, people room, people, people share hotel rooms, folks. It's a cost cutting measure. And when guys are on the road and maybe they don't have the money to be buying a hotel room, they, double up, you know, Mick Foley, those guys slept, you know, three, four, five to a room to save money over the years. And Bob Ryder, I always found Bob Ryder to be nothing but professional, bust his ass and was always very good to me. So, uh, I never witnessed anything of any of the stuff that you said. So from your worldview, this is all just rumors. From my from my view, it's all strictly rumors. Yes, uh, I had no idea if there's any truth to that. You'd have to ask other people involved in that. When I just mentioned that to you, was that the first time you've heard that before? No, I've heard the rumors before. I, I've definitely heard the rumors before, and I addressed it with Bob when I first started there. What does that and conversation Bob, sound like? The conversation sounds like, "Hey, man, I've I've heard these rumors about you. I've heard that uh, you." 
will sometimes ask guys for favors for a push. You're not in a position to push anybody. He was the travel man, and he wasn't in a creative position to book and or push anybody anyway. And he said he denied the rumors. He said that wasn't the case. I have to take him at his word. And I never found that to be an issue when I was there. So from my vantage point with Bob, he was straight up and um, I didn't have any problem with him in, in, in regard to any, not even anything close like that while I was there. What, um, what do you think causes Bob Ryder to have a negative reputation online? Because it seems like there's a lot of, a lot of folks who dislike him who haven't ever probably ever met him. Well, sure. I mean, there's a lot of people that hate me that have never met me. And, okay, I know. Go ahead. You were going to say, well, Bruce, come on. You know. Um, but it's the same thing. It's because of the position he was in. He, he was in a position of perceived power. Right now, I guess he's in a position of power. I don't really know. But a lot of times it's easy to pick on a guy – you know, you and I have talked about this before where when TNA, uh, I'm going to use your analogy. I'm going to steal your shit now. So like when uh, Baghdad, everything's the statue of Saddam Hussein is coming down <laughs> in the background. Um, Bob Ryder standing out in front saying, nothing to see here, folks. It's all good. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that, that has been the position that Bob Ryder has unfortunately befell with TNA and you know, he's standing up for his company, just as you and I would. Uh, his official title, I believe, is Director of Talent Bookings and Travel. I don't know that for sure, but he certainly has more power than just being a travel guy now. Um, but I wanted to hear that from you because there's a lot of people who believe that the dude's a sleazeball. Um, but you have a different story. You're of the mindset that he's a pretty good, pretty good hardworking dude. Yeah, without a doubt. Okay, let's uh, let's talk about who I consider, I guess, to be Mr. TNA himself, Mr. Jeremy Borash. Uh, Borash has is, has always been a guy who's, uh, I don't know, people are hot and cold on, on Borash. Uh, what was your experience with Borash? What did you hear before you got there, and what did you find once you were actually there? Well, I'd heard that Jeremy Borash was a stooge, that Jeremy Borash was, you know, Jeff Jarrett's right-hand guy and... Um, you know, went and told everything that went on, no matter what it was. And, and I'd heard not great things about Jeremy Borash before I actually ever met him upon meeting him and having the opportunity to work with Jeremy Borash. I found him to be an invaluable person for TNA, the hardest working man in that company. He did everything. He was an announcer. He did uh, helped out on the internet stuff. He ran camera. He produced. He just did, if there was something that needed to be done, no questions asked, Jeremy Borash would do it and do it well. And it took, you know, a little while to to get to realize all of that because I thought, well, what the, why the hell is Jeremy Borash doing that? And I realized that Borash did it because no one else was doing it and it needed to be done. Uh, Jeremy also produced a lot of stuff on his own. He would go out and make things happen and a hardworking guy, uh, proud to call him a friend. And he's one of those people that will succeed no matter where he is and no matter what he does. Cause he's a hardworking guy. Do you think, uh, if the wheel ever runs off in TNA, he would have an opportunity to work with WWE? Jeremy, 
I, I think it's sad that uh, that he hasn't had that opportunity yet because he would be a hell of an asset to the WWE. And at the same time, he's such a self-starter and he's such a go-getter that they might want to put the reins on him a little bit, and I think that would stifle him somewhat. He's working with Robert Irvine. He's doing stuff with Howard Stern. He's always out there creating something for himself. So I think he's doing all right where he is and doing what he's doing. Yeah, I wasn't suggesting that he needs to leave. I just know he's a hardworking dude and he loves the wrestling business. And if this thing ever goes sideways one day, I'd like to think that he had an opportunity. Well, he, he definitely would be an asset without a doubt. All right, let's talk about another guy who used to be an asset for TNA, Mike Tanay. Uh, I want to know from your perspective why Mike Tanay is no longer in TNA, what your experience was like working with him, and why we haven't seen him with WWE. It seems like a natural thing. He was a part of WCW and then TNA, and he's been around forever, and now he's not involved with a major wrestling promotion, and that seems a little weird to me, so... What did you think of working with Mike Tanay, and why don't you think we're seeing him much these days? Well, I like Mike Tanay a lot, uh, personally and professionally, and I think Tanay was a talented guy, stand-up guy, responsible. The I can't tell you why he's not there anymore. I, I just assumed that they wanted a younger, different look and feel other than Mike, but not to utilize Mike in a producer's role or a creative role, I think is kind of a miscarriage because he's great there. He's, he's a, one of those guys with great attention to detail, um, very well informed and responsible. It's, it's like one of the good guys. Today's one of the good guys. And, for him, uh, same thing. I'll say the same thing about him and WWE. I think today with the network, the WWE network, he would be such an asset to them. They they wouldn't know what hit him if Mike Tanay came in there and took that thing over and helped them out with their research and what have you. Uh, let's talk about Keith Mitchell. He's somebody who we didn't touch on in a previous episode. He's been around the business forever. I think he... Uh, First came to notoriety out at World Class and then spent a lot of time in WCW. Uh, and now, you know, he spent quite a bit of time with TNA. What was your experience like working with Keith? It was my first time having the pleasure of actually getting to work with Keith Mitchell was during my time at TNA. Now, I'd actually tried to hire Keith Mitchell on two different occasions over the years away from WCW. Tell our listeners what Keith did. Keith Mitchell was a producer, a director, and Keith was the producer of the world-class championship wrestling out of Dallas, Texas for Fritz Von Erich back in the day when world-class really exploded. Keith Mitchell was the first guy to utilize the microphones on handheld cameras and open up those mics and hear inside the ring what the referee was saying, what the talent were saying to each other and not spot calls or anything like that. But it really amplified and enhanced the viewing experience. Keith was so ahead of his time, uh, very creative. And Keith went from world class. He went to WCW, uh, worked for Turner 
just an unbelievable talent. He eventually moved to Atlanta, makes his home in Atlanta now. And when um, Jeff started TNA, he utilized Keith Mitchell's experience and expertise to help him out with TNA. And Keith is an old, just an old Texas boy, likes to go hunt, pretty simple. Uh, give him a beer and just let him sit out and smoke his cigar, and, and he's good to go, man, and beyond talented. But I that was one of the really bright spots that you can say, did you enjoy going to work? I loved, I loved going to work and working creative and working with the talent, and I throw Keith Mitchell in that talent pool. Uh, why do you think, you know, considering his long time in the business, he was never a candidate? Uh, not necessarily a candidate. Why did he never wind up with Vince? Uh, was this a Kevin Dunn situation? We tried, man. I tried to hire him twice. What kept him from coming? Uh, he was set in Atlanta. He liked Atlanta. Didn't want to move to Connecticut. He was happy where he was. Wasn't about the money. Wasn't about the fame. He was happy where he was. When you say that, it makes me think of David Sahadi. Uh, David Sahadi was well known for producing video packages for the WWE including uh, the uh, the very popular Stone Cold Steve Austin uh, rock promo to the Limp Biscuit song My Way right before WrestleMania. Uh, and the one that I've heard, Rumors and Innuendo, that Vince loved the most was the old black and white footage um, from the mid-2000s that had classy Freddie Blassie doing the voiceover, uh, talking about some of the Hall of Fames like Ernie Ladd and stuff like that. Um what happened with him departing WWE and then what was it like working with him in TNA and specifically his name comes up when you hear about the situation where WWE was in Orlando filming a commercial for the Royal Rumble and TNA was involved and you were there on the WWE side. Sahadi was there on the TNA side and he had just gotten there. Tell us about working with Sahadi, why he left and then that specific incident, please. This Mother's Day and Father's Day, look no further for the perfect gift than PaintYourLife.com. It's worked for me every time, and when I say every time, I mean it. I've used PaintYourLife.com to bring tears to the eyes of my mom, my dad, even my father-in-law. And right now, I'm ordering one for my mother-in-law, all from PaintYourLife.com. My mother-in-law's life is her dog, Missy. And this year, my wife and I knew exactly what to get my mother-in-law for Mother's Day, a painting of Missy. It really is that simple too. All we needed was a, a picture from our phone. Boom. We're up and running. You see, paintyourlife.com can really create a hand painted portrait to fit almost any budget. And it's the perfect gift for your mother, your father, or both. I've used it, as I said, on almost every person in my life. I've given these to my wife. I've given it to my cousin, my mom, my dad, my father-in-law. If I'm looking to give a truly meaningful, personable gift, I know the paintyourlife.com has my back and they're going to make it easy. You can go ahead and start the entire process in less than five minutes. And what's really cool about paintyourlife.com is they can even combine photos. Maybe you want to put two people who never met in one of your favorite vacation spots. You can do that. Just upload the photos. Bam. You're good to go. Maybe grandpa never got to meet his grandson with paintyourlife.com. That can become a reality. You can put people and places together even if they've never been there 
You pick the artist, you pick the medium. Do you want oil, acrylic, watercolor, charcoal? You can even go ahead and pick out an awesome frame. The whole process to get started, as I said, takes less than five minutes, and you can actually get your painting in as little as two weeks. But you work hand-in-hand with the artist to get every detail perfect. If you're looking to get those waterworks going, to have your mom or your dad tear that paper and just almost be overcome with emotion, that's what I got, and I've never gotten that reaction to a gift card. You can give the most meaningful gift you've ever given at paintyourlife.com. There's no risk. If you don't love the final painting, your money is refunded, guaranteed. And right now, as a limited time offer, get 20% off your painting. That's right, 20% off and free shipping. Now, to get this special offer, just text the word WRESTLE to 87204. That's WRESTLE to 87204. Text WRESTLE to 87204. Paint your life. Celebrate the moments that matter most. Message and data rates may apply. See paintyourlife.com slash terms for details. Afford Anything talks about how to avoid common pitfalls, how to refine your mental models, and how to think about how to think. Paula, while certainly you can mess up on a million dollars a year, it is far less likely than it is on $30,000 a year. Right. I would meet wonderful people that were struggling with a budget that was super tight. It was 100%. You need to make more money. Make smarter choices and build a better life. Afford Anything, wherever you listen. Well, Sahadi came to us from uh, NBC. He was a promo guy at NBC and came in to produce spots and to help with production at the WWF back in the day. Uh, John Filippelli was there at the time. And Sahadi was in is, in my opinion, a genius when it comes to television production. And Sahadi was the one responsible in a big part for the evolution of Stone Cold Steve Austin, kind of from the Million Dollar Champion and the Ringmaster and turning him into Stone Cold with those vignettes of Steve pacing in the yard and the dogs barking in the chain link fence and all that. That was a brainchild of David Sahadi. And he did some really, really great stuff. He talked about the Hall of Fame spot with Fred Blassie and Gorilla Monsoon. Anything that Sahadi could do that could utilize the talent of classy Freddie Blassie, he would. And I'm going to, I'll tweet out the picture from a party at David Sahadi's house with me and Fred Blassie from years ago when I had black hair. Uh, we won't talk about that, but uh, maybe some other time. But Sahadi was just burnt out and he had been running hard at WWF and he was burnt out, wanted to take some time, wanted to travel a little bit and just get away from the grind and he took a leave of absence. He took some time off and didn't come back and decided that he was just going to take some time, live in the mountains, I believe in, um, Chattanooga. And during this time, Jeff Jarrett contacted him, told him what he was doing, asked him if he could help, had him come in and he became helping with the opens and some of the production pieces for TNA. And I dare say that he contributed a great deal to the look of those packages for TNA and did a great job. I think where Sahadi kind of, um, I, I don't think Dave was, they, they ended up moving Dave into a director position where he was directing the live shows and Dave was not a director. And so people would kind of blame Dave for 
the live show because he was uh, the director calling shots, but that wasn't his forte. Right. He's great post-production and he tried and he did the very best that he could, but uh, you know, was what it was. And then you, you talked about when we were down there, we were producing a commercial for the Royal Rumble and we were in Universal Studios Orlando and we had a soundstage and Universal Orlando is also where TNA produced their television show in a separate sound soundstage down the way. And while we were there, uh, some of the TNA talent came over with cookies and balloons to welcome us and they were recording it, trying to ambush us and get some of our stars on their TV. Who were the guys and who approached with the cookies and balloons? It was Abyss, uh, Road Dog, Jesse James, uh, maybe uh, Kip Sop, and I, I don't maybe Conan. I don't remember who else, but I know it was Abyss and Road Dog for sure. And and they came, and uh, John Gaborik, who was with WWF at the time, who's now at TNA, uh, Gaborik and, and Sahadi got heated. And I think Gaborik called Sahadi and threatened him and was going to beat him up and all this other crap. Um, they put Ray shot Ray Mysterio without his mask out at catering and Ray unbeknownst to Ray, Ray being Ray, one of the nicest guys in the world walks over to go say hello to the guys and, and they were recording him. So it wasn't, it wasn't cool, but it's it's something that frankly we probably would have done being in the same position. <clears throat> we being so, WWE, were you there at, for this taping? I was, yes, I was. I, I was at uh, Universal Studios. I was inside. I was actually inside the studio when this took place. Outside, I came out after the big blow up and everything was dispersed. But it wasn't. You know, I was like, okay, great, they came. Get rid of them. Make sure they don't come back, and let's move on. Does something like that exclude or, you know, would Vince ever hold that against an abyss or somebody like that if given an opportunity to have a conversation? Oh, my God, no. I I mean, look at it. Road Dog is uh, in charge of their creative now. Yeah, I just didn't know since he had, uh, you know, a track record there. I just wonder, you know, it feels like it is a ballsy move. It's a cool move. But you wonder, hey, is this going to hurt my future employment opportunities if you're in talent? Wouldn't that at least cross your mind? It might, but it doesn't. Yeah, I didn't think if, so. If anything, it enhances events. them because you got balls. Absolutely. Um, you know, we mentioned Universal Studios there. Do you have any funny Universal Studios stories that you could share with us? Besides Al Snow screaming like a girl when we went in the uh, Halloween Horror Nights, and he's God. My God, I, I've never heard a grown man scream as much as Al Snow going through a haunted house. It's embarrassing, absolutely embarrassing. I think one of the funniest things that, that happened, every year they have the Grinch who stole Christmas, and the Grinch, the, the studio for the Grinch show was right next to the soundstage where we did our show. So all day long, the Grinch and Lucy Lou or whatever the hell her name is and, and all the who people and everything would walk from their studio across the way to the dressing rooms. And, and all day long I would, um, harass the Grinch. 
and I would tell everybody, hey, that motherfucker right there is going to try and steal Christmas. I know it. That son of a bitch. And keep an eye on him. And at one point during the day, they were walking by, and I took a picture of the Grinch in, in his uh, makeup coat. And everybody got all upset, said we were back there taking pictures. I said, yeah, I took a picture. You know, I mean, what the hell? They're, take, they're taking pictures of us. We should be able to take pictures of them. They're walking by taking pictures of us. So um, I just, I unmercifully fucked with the Grinch. And for we were there for three days. And for three days, I would just scream at the Grinch. He's going to steal Christmas. I'm keep an eye on that son of a bitch. Watch that green motherfucker. And... Finally, on the last day that we were there, the Grinch is walking by, and I look at the Grinch, and I, I turn, uh, either Pat Kenny or Al Snow, and I said, I know that son of a bitch is going to steal Christmas. And out of nowhere, the Grinch turns to me and says, You, Bruce Pritchard, you, I've had my eye on you. I'm going to, and just cut this incredible Grinch promo on my ass in front of everybody at catering and i was the only one not in on it and it was absolutely classic and um yeah the grinch cut a promo on me that was, that was fun but universal was fun man we were right next to the wizarding world of harry potter we could sneak over there and get some butter beer and uh, when we used to do those one night only pay-per-views and we would do like in the afternoon we would shoot uh, a three-hour show. Then that night, we would do a three-hour show. I'll make a confession here. I used to go walk over with Bernie, who was our liaison at Universal, and we used to go over and, and sit in the bar over in Harry Potter World and, and have a few beers in between shows. So that was nice. Is that the bar that everybody hung out at? Because I've heard a lot of guys talk about you know drinking at the show no. down there. No, no, no. This was actually in the Universal Studios uh, amusement park. And in the amusement park, in certain places, they have actual bars. Got it. So, yeah. And Bernie was working and I was working. And so we would just kind of hide in a corner and have a couple of uh, cold silver bullets. Uh, let's get back on track with guys you used to work with. Uh, one of the guys that we talked about or didn't talk about in the last episode was Mike Tanay's broadcast partner, Taz. Uh, there was lots of talk here at the end of Taz's run with TNA that there were financial disputes. I want you to shed some light on that if you can. I know you're not going to give us numbers. I'm not even going to ask. But shed some light on that. Uh, and while you're doing it, kind of tell us how that process worked. Did he travel to Orlando and call all the shows there? Or did he go there and then have to do post uh, uh, at a later time in Nashville? What does that cycle look like, and how was Taz to work with as a talent here? Yo, brother, why are you fucking with Taz? No, all the above. Um, I love working with Taz. Taz was easy, and Taz was a pro. He's one of those guys that takes himself seriously, and he came in. He was doing color. He was there when I got there. But uh, Taz, we would do commentary. We would do some commentary there at the arena, at the soundstage. And sometimes we would leave commentary blank, and they would come in and do commentary back in Nashville every week to try and keep it uh, as current as you possibly could. But Taz, I mean, Taz was easy. And 
he did his work, showed up on time. You didn't have to worry about him. And I really didn't have a problem with him. If you just shot straight with him, he shot straight with you. You always knew where he was coming from. He had contractual issues. Uh, it seemed like every year. And I'll, I'll try to give you the example. Um, I'll ask you just two simple questions. If you're paid bi-monthly on, in one year, how many times will you be paid? Uh, bi-monthly would be 24. If you were paid every other week in one year, how many times would you be paid? 26. So if your contract calls for you to be paid bi-monthly and the company pays you that bi-monthly amount weekly or bi-weekly. Yeah, you get paid an extra month's worth of uh, income each year. Correct. So, like, let's just hypothetically say if that were to happen and they would catch it a year and a half, two years later, after the fact, you know, they would come back and say, oh, we overpaid people. And they would want the talent to pay that money back. Well, coming from a talent perspective and coming from the talent world where oftentimes, at least in the WWE, and and I dare say even with Bill Watts and, and Paul Bosch, there were times you got bonuses. Mm-hmm. So you would get your salary pay, but you also got bonuses. Mm-hmm. So if you make more money than what you were contractually obligated to make, you assume or you figure, well, hell, it's a bonus. I did kind a of good a job. Given. Yeah. It's an understanding. Well, Panda in Dallas, they didn't understand that. So there were issues like that with Taz, but it was always Panda's fuck up. I see. And, you know, every, every single time Taz was in the right. And it was just, it was silly, stupid shit that just didn't have to be. And I assume, I do not know, have never talked to Taz about it. Uh, he left after I left, but it wouldn't surprise me if it was over a silly, stupid issue like that. Uh, another guy that you worked with um, there at uh, TNA that you had worked with before you mentioned a moment ago was Al Snow. Uh, Al was uh, one of the agents there. Who were the rest of the agents? And can you kind of break down what the daily life of an agent would have been for TNA? Well, there was Al Snow, there was D'Lo Brown, there was Pat Kenny, uh, Bully Ray was an agent from time to time, would help us out on TV tapings. Abyss would even help us out at TV tapings and maybe agent a match or two if we needed him to, or help out. Um, the agents would come, they'd be a part of our television production meeting early in the day, and they would work on the matches themselves with the talent, they would get with the talent, come up with finishes and come up with the layout of the match and convey that to the talent during the day. And then they would work with the production truck to make sure that they knew everything that was going to happen throughout the night. Um, Every one of those guys I, I thoroughly enjoyed working with because it was a, they would probably tell you different when I say it was a low pressure job <laughs> Because I might have been a little intense at times. Some people say I would yell and scream. Um, That's just simply not true. Uh, I was just passionate about things at times. and But for the most part, we had a blast. I really enjoyed working with those guys because nobody had an ego. They were, everybody was open to ideas. 
and it was a it was a free form freestyle, you know, um, exchange of ideas. Um, what were the Harris brothers doing when you were there? Their name we see associated a lot with TNA now, but back when you were there, uh, going all the way back to your WWE days, they were the Disciples of Apocalypse, the DOA. Uh, and before that, they had another gimmick and another gimmick. I mean, they've been around the wrestling business for a long, long time. Uh, and they started as talent with TNA as well, but now they've worked themselves uh, into a backstage role. What role did they have when you were there? They weren't there when I was there. Okay. They were they were never there for one day while I was there. But Ron and Don, man, I years uh, I've known them for years. Always got along with them. Love them. Great sense of humor. I always found them to be great guys. Uh, I want to talk about another guy who I don't think was there when you were there yet. You mentioned him a minute ago about the Royal Rumble shoot with Sahadi. Uh, Big is his nickname. Uh, people probably remember him from the original Tough Enough. Uh, John Gaborik. Did I say his name right? Yeah, John Gaborik, yeah. So, Gaborik, he is somebody who has, uh, you know, had a rise, I guess, in TNA. I think he's like an executive vice president of talent relations now or something like that. So, he's in a pretty prominent role. Kind of curious through, you know, big in the WWE, his departure there, uh, and what your experience was like working with him. Well, Big was one of Kevin Dunn's best friends, and he was brought in in the WWE to be the guy that lives with the talent uh, for the first Tough Enough show and be the liaison producer between MTV and the WWF uh, for the Tough Enough shows. And he continued that role in subsequent Tough Enough seasons. But I don't know, maybe did, but I don't know that he did if he had any previous production experience but it was somebody that kevin dunn trusted and put him in that position and later years in wwf he was in charge of getting the production crews and the locations for our off-site vignettes special shoots and commercials and things like that um uh, he i wasn't there when he started at tna he started right when i was leaving so i didn't didn't really have any interaction other than a phone call or two with him at TNA. Uh, and you don't know what his background is? Um, I think he uh, had a furniture store and a, a cigar store in Baltimore. And that's maybe how Beyond that, I, I really don't know. Okay. Um, a lot of people blame him for some of the quote-unquote fall of tna um just miscues one way or another for right fairly or not you know a lot of people point the finger to him for some of their challenges did you know of any sort of shenanigans to happen with kaboric when he was in wwe um no i don't know i mean okay well let me just say it the rumors in innuendo are that he would you know, kind of say one thing and do another, and that upset some of the talent, but it also upset some management and some of the other partners where he would misrepresent things to different people, including talent. Some of those guys on their way out credit him as being a reason they leave. And then maybe it's sour grapes, but you start. Oh, are you talking about TNA or WWF? Well, I'm talking about TNA, and I know you okay. weren't there, okay. but I'm saying gotcha. as a basis, was any of that evident? I mean, like, I don't know why he left WWE. But I'm saying, 
um, supposedly he's politicking in TNA and making some wrong calls. And one of the rumors and innuendo are that he has a little bit of a casting couch for the TNA knockouts. And I'm not saying that's happened. That's all message board bullshit as far as I know. But did you know of any sort of saying one thing and doing another or playing the political game or having some leverage or having some inappropriate relationships with female talent or anything like that with him and WWE? Well, I, I think that the rap on him and WWE was that he was Kevin Dunn's best friend, and that's the only reason he was there. Um, that was the rap on him at WWE. As far as TNA, I've heard after the fact, I've heard the same rumor and innuendo about him, but I don't know if any of that's true. It comes along with the position. And no matter what, uh, I've heard some horrible things about things that he's allegedly said and, and done there. But again, it's it's simply rumored innuendo. I didn't experience it, so it, it's tough to comment on it because, no, I, I never experienced anything like that firsthand with him. I didn't have that much interaction with him. When, when I interacted with him at WWE, it was simply I would come in to go do a shoot, and he was the guy that uh, had hired the crew and or got the place for me. Uh, Dale Oliver. He is the music director for TNA, and uh, he worked closely with uh, Serge, and uh, that's Dixie's husband. Do you have any uh, interesting stories or familiar stories about working with Dale? No, but Dale Dale was a trip, man. Dale was a lot of fun. He's one of those guys that we would always hang out with afterwards. And, and I well, hang on. Let me rephrase that because I didn't hang out a lot uh, at TNA. I, I tried to keep to myself, and I would – usually just go out with the creative guys or Al Snow and uh, Pat Kenny. But on occasion, and when I'd be in Nashville from time to time, Dale was one of those guys that was fun to sit and have a beer with and chat because he's played with everybody's guitar player. He's a music producer, very talented guy. And if you remember the, you remember the deal where Eric Bischoff was playing guitar Mm-hmm. Opened up a TNA show. That was Dale Oliver that was actually playing it. Oh, okay. So when they had the close-up shots, and, and Eric plays a little bit, so he was able to fake his way through it for the live uh, arena shot. But when the, the music actually being played in those uh, tight shots, those were, that was Dale. Uh, what about Surge uh, when it comes to music? What's your favorite theme music that Surge has ever put together? Trouble, trouble, trouble. Trouble, trouble, trouble. Trouble, 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 trouble. Got to find a way to work trouble, that trouble, into every trouble. TNA show. What about uh, Bill Banks? Bill Banks. Wow. It's a deep, uh, it's a deep cut right there. Uh, Bill Banks was with WCW back in the day and then eventually works uh, with TNA as well. Uh, he did a lot of work on the old WCW magazine. Uh, and then when he goes to work with uh, TNA, he has a variety of roles. Uh, I wanted to know... You know, from your perspective, uh, what what he contributed to uh, TNA? Bill Banks, in my opinion, contributed nothing to TNA. Bill Banks originally worked at the WWF in the uh, on WWF.com, and he was uh, on the website, and he worked with Vince Russo. And when Vince Russo left to go to WCW. Bill Banks went left and went to work with uh, WCW with Russo. And then from there went to TNA. 
Uh, Bill is, I dare say that if left to Bill's own devices, that the TNA website would look exactly like the WWF website did in 1998. I hadn't seen, it was a constant battle, constant battle uh, to, okay, these talents were released from the company. Please take them off the website. Two weeks later, Bill, I asked you two weeks ago, please take these off of the website. They are no longer with the company. Three weeks later, four weeks later, five weeks later. He just, I don't know what it was with him. He would hide in his office with the door shut and the lights off and would become very defensive if you ever questioned him about anything, but was very opinionated and would attack everybody else in the company for not working and tell everybody how hard he worked when we would ask for change. We would ask, just, I would just ask for simple things. Keep, keep the site updated. Don't have tonight on Impact about a show that's two weeks old especially when we were taped. It's like, let's plug some of this shit. Let's tease. Let's get people interested in the show. Let's be ahead of the game and update the website as the live show is going on. Oh, no, that's too difficult to do. I I would need, I, I would need a whole staff. You've had the show for a week. You can build stuff ahead of time and be ready to post it. Just keep it up to date so that people who are watching the show live can go to our website and get updated. Let's have something beyond the show. Let's do some backstage stuff. Let's do some extra things that you can't get on TV. Um, yeah, I don't mean to be mean, but he's horrible. I did not expect that. Absolutely uh, horrible. So since, Sorry, Bill, but you're horrible. That's why you listen to something to wrestle with right there, kids. Every now and again, I hit a name that I had no idea would get that type of reaction. Um, and that's why we don't talk about this, folks, before we go on the air. I had gracious. no idea what's coming at me, <laughs> and neither does he. Bill Banks, um, on his LinkedIn profile says that he was the magazine writer and editor from 95 to 99 for the WWF magazine. Uh, and then he kind of oversaw all of that. And he also <laughs> says in 98 and 99, he was a, he was a member of the creative team for Monday night raw broadcast on the USA network and a weekly two hour SmackDown broadcast and monthly three hour pay-per-views such as WrestleMania, SummerSlam, Royal Rumble, etc. So he was on the creative writing team, 98, 99. I didn't know that. Yeah. You know, it would be interesting if you were to ask Vince McMahon about Bill Banks. Go ahead. Ask Vince McMahon about Bill Banks. So Mr. McMahon, I've got Bill Banks on the line for you. Apparently down there in Nashville, uh, things ain't looking so good and, he wanted to talk to you about rejoining the creative team here in the WWE, Mr. McMahon. Who? You know. Well, you know, uh, Bill Banks. He ran the magazine from 95 to 99. And, you know, well, you know, he's Russo's buddy. 
What Ma- magazine, pal? Pronouns. God damn it. Y- your, your magazine, sir. The WWF magazine. He was buddies with Russo. He, uh, he ran the WCW website too for Turner and oversaw a staff of 10 employees for daily updates, including news, photos, graphics, television, and live event promotion. What the fuck are you talking about? Rambling on. I've never heard of this jack off. Well, you know, he was, he wrote for WWE. He wrote SmackDown. He wrote raw. He wrote wrestle. I'm reading it right off his LinkedIn here. Mr. McMahon. He wrote SummerSlam. He wrote Royal Rumble. Uh, then he went to WCW and he wrote there. He wrote Nitro and he wrote Thunder. Uh, and now he's in Nashville. And of course, down there, he's had an opportunity to write for Pop TV and Destination America and Spike TV. And what the fuck is Pop TV? Well, you know, it's. It's where they're doing that TNA show now where the Hardy boys are deleting everybody. God damn it, pal. Get me a coffee. Yes, sir. How do you like your coffee? Like I like my women. Hot and wet. And paid for. Thank you, Mr. McMahon. So where does this hate for Bill Banks come from, dude? I never I saw this. I don't hate him. I mean, that, you, well, I mean, you did say, "Hey, sorry, Bill, but you're horrible." So I mean, you did well, say I'm sorry. Just saying he was horrible. Yeah, but yeah, he, he was. I think he was the associate editor, which means that he used to like make copies and shit like that. And uh, for Russo, that's basically what he was. He was kind of like a writer's assistant to Russo. I've met Bill a couple times, and he's always cool to me. Uh, so I don't, sure. I don't, I don't know Bill in this negative way you do, but, uh, he's been there according to his LinkedIn since April of 2003. And, uh, he says he's done everything there from, uh, being a producer to, uh, handling the website and the social media, uh, Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, all that stuff. Uh, and also what a glowing, re- what a glowing recommendation that is. And look at their shit. Hmm. You know, the only, the, one of the only times I've ever seen Dixie Carter get pissed and I mean pissed and go off on someone was at Bill Banks in a, uh, in a meeting. How so? Are you going to tell us a story? Um, God damn. I'm trying to forget. I'm trying to remember who the hell the girl was. It was it was one of the knockouts, and Bill was making fun of the way she looked, and Dixie just and he was doing it all under his breath, making little you know snide remarks and laughing to himself and just being a, a little dick. And Dixie went off on him. What'd she bad. say? What'd she say? No, she just stop with your with your remarks. You don't have a clue, and I'm sick of your smart ass comments. And you don't contribute anything positively to any of these meetings. All you do is knock everybody. That type of shit. Wow. Yeah, and for Dixie, dude, that was snug. Dude, it sounds like maybe the only. I mean, that might be the only story I've ever heard like that about Dixie. Yeah, well, it's one of the, one of. The only ones I really remember her going off on someone and she did it in public. I mean, she did it at a big meeting. Well, I, um, 
I did not expect that with our Bill Banks conversation today. From from my first from my first day on the job, uh, it was can we get someone to overhaul the website till the very last day they left was you know God we need someone to do the website. Everyone they brought in and talked to, of course, I guess they didn't like because they had ideas. I don't know. Or they wanted to be paid. One of those. Oh damn. What? What happens? I'm not saying that to be ugly. Let's move along uh, and let's talk about something else that got moved along. Uh, And that was the gut check. We somehow missed this on our first TNA show. And this was really, really, really popular with uh, our Twitter fans. I don't know how we missed it, but we still covered three hours and managed to miss it. Uh, Gut check had a couple of different incarnations, uh, but it really got off the ground when you were there. Um, and you guys turned it into a television segment and it's famous for, in the very first one, uh, Alex Silva was the contestant. He had a match against Robbie E and then they threw it to a vote with Bruce Pritchard, Al Snow and Ric Flair. And supposedly the rumors and innuendo would lead you to believe that everybody knew what the answers were going to be like, you know, these guys say yes. And these guys say no, but Flair goes off script and changes his mind and says yes, and that changes the whole outcome of the thing. So the guy wasn't getting a contract, but now because Flair just went into business for himself, now he is signed, and he doesn't even have a work visa to work here. What's true, what's false, and what really happened? Well, uh, as far as gut check, it was simply an idea to be able to expose some new talent, and we were doing gut check on the road where we would get indie guys and, and people that wanted to audition for a spot on the roster to come to the shows and work out with the agents and work out with some of the talent. We were looking for new segments for the television show. Spike wanted something new. Dixie wanted something new. We wanted something new. And American Idol was hot. And we thought, well, what if we actually had live auditions on the show? And we had people, uh, guys come out, they wrestle a match, and then the next week we would critique that match and we would talk amongst uh, ourselves. We had three different judges that would then decide whether or not this guy would get a contract. Originally, the three judges were going to be uh, Ric Flair, Earl Hebner, and I think Al Snow. Um, they had them talking over the match at first in an insert and it just didn't work. We scrapped the idea. It didn't work. And did that ever make air? No, it did not. Okay. It was taped. We taped it to try it out and do a dry run, see if there was something there. Uh, Dixie really wanted me to be on air. I didn't want to be on air. Why Eric didn't, made why a big didn't push. Why didn't want to be on air? I'm not comfortable being myself on air. <laughs> I know that's crazy. Uh, I hear this show something to wrestle with Bruce Pritchard. Um, but I was much more comfortable being a character. I like being a character. Plus, I didn't want to take up TV time. We had talent that mm-hmm. needed to be on TV and needed that time. Why, why do you want to look at an old fart like me? And she felt it was real. Eric made a push for it, talked me into it, and I decided, okay, I'll do it. And so it was me, Flair, and Al Snow. We, I knew what the other two judges were going to vote, and I would essentially 
determine the order. I'd let Jeremy Borash know the order to ask which judge at what time, and then I would usually, I, I would have the deciding vote how I wanted it to play out, whether it was me doing it or one of them. Um, with Alex Silva, he came in, the vote was no. But right before the third and final vote, uh, we gave the guys an opportunity to cut a promo to possibly sway the last judge's decision. Well, Flair had already voted, and Flair voted no. He was the first one to vote. Al Snow voted yes. So I'm the deciding vote. Alex Silva cuts his promo. Flair grabs the microphone and says, I changed my mind. I vote yes. <laughs> and the kid's in. And he's hired. And we're on live TV. And um, it was crazy because the kid didn't have a visa. Couldn't work in the States. We'd had him on a temporary, you know, one or two off deal appearances to be able to do the gut check thing, but he didn't have a visa. So now we had to start working on a visa. Didn't work out. He wasn't that good and never should have got the contract in the first place. But gut check was simply a vehicle to get new talent exposed, bring some new fresh talent in and a different way to introduce them. And the thing that most people talk about is contestant number two, which is when Joey Ryan in May of 2012 uh, had a match with Austin Aries. They take it to a vote, and this time Taz has replaced uh, Ric Flair. It's a no from Bruce Pritchard. It's a yes from Al Snow, and it's a no from Taz. Uh, what happened from there? What was a work? What was a shoot? And when did it become a work shoot, if it did? Well... Uh, that's one of those deals where, you notice how I got that in? Yep. Okay. Thank you. Where we knew what we were going to do. And I had said, no, Al had said, yes. Funny how that worked. Cause we really usually did disagree. It was time for Joey to cut his promo and Joey cut a great promo on me and on Taz. Well, Taz being the pro that he is, you know, he stuck to the script. He didn't go off script, and he said no. But Taz was pissed because the kid cut a hell of a personal promo on me and on Taz. Well, as this is taking place, and we get out of the ring, and I go back, and they've got a camera in, uh, in Joey's face, and I, I tell him I'm listening to this, and I'm thinking, oh, my God, this guy's great. I send Al Snow in to I said, go in there, grab him, and throw him out. Make sure that the camera... You know, it's still on you and stuff. Now, nobody knows. I mean, every, everybody everybody assumes it's work, but then it turned into a shoot. But it truly was a shoot. And Joey shot himself into a work, I guess you could say. But Joey was working as well. I mean, he was just cutting promos, getting himself over, which I told him to do. So Al gets Joey outside. I said, bring him over to my trailer. We met in between the trailers. And Eric comes running over. I said, man, that was great. Encouraged Joey to uh, continue his tirade. I said, man, I want you to leave here, but I want you to get on YouTube, and I want you to get on Twitter, and I want you to lambaste the shit out of us. We don't know what the hell we're doing, chicken shit operation, blah, blah, blah. And um, we signed him. I mean, we I had a contract drawn up for him right then, um, sent it to him the next couple of days. And told Taz, I said, hey, you know, here's the deal. And Taz thought we had worked him, which we hadn't. It was just Joey's promo, and it was a great one. 
And I said, you know, Joey's going to do this, and he's going to cut promos on us and talk about what pieces of shit we are, and I want to build this thing up. Well, Joey got personal, Taz got personal, and then we realized that, well, we've kind of worked ourselves into a corner because there's no payoff with Taz. Taz can't wrestle. He's got a neck issue, and physically he couldn't get back in the ring. So we had to switch it to kind of put the heat on Al Snow, and that was the story of Joey Ryan. But that, that was one of those situations that we were live. It worked out. Joey cut a hell of a promo. Instead of hiring him right there, we threw him the hell out and made a story out of it to bring him back. And uh, I, I enjoyed Joey's work at that time. <laughs> Christian York, uh, towards the uh, end of this idea, gets an opportunity in November of 2012 uh from the North Carolina circuit, friends with the Hardys and Shannon Moore and Shane Helms and all that. Why do you think he didn't get a bigger opportunity there? He did. I think that Christian just was kind of reminiscent of that old Southern wrestler, like Vince McMahon would say. And it just kind of was a, was a tired gimmick, a tired look. And there wasn't a whole lot special about Christian. I thought his work was good. I liked the hell out of him, but the audience didn't really seem to care. Uh, when did Sam Shaw start doing the um, Dexter ripoff? Was that after you were gone? Yeah, that was after I was gone. What about Wes Briscoe? Uh, he did the very last uh, gut check, uh, or one of the last ones in 2012 when you were there, um, against Garrett Bischoff. Two guys who are the sons of guys you're very good friends with their dads. Your thoughts on those two as performers? Well, it was an opportunity to bring Wes in, and Jerry Briscoe and I are very good friends. And it was an opportunity to put Wes out there, impress or not impress. And I thought Wes did a hell of a job, and I like Wes. And I felt that he had a future in this business, still think he has a future in the business. And it was a different way to introduce somebody. If he impressed us and was good, he got a hell of a reaction. The match wasn't that great, but I saw something in him. And I saw something that I felt that we could have used. And we had the Aces and Eight story happening at the time. So it was a way to integrate uh, kind of a devil knot secret agent in the Aces and Eights and utilize Wes. So... You know, that's the story of Wes Briscoe. It was just another way to introduce talent. Why don't you think Wes got a bigger opportunity with WWE? I know he was signed for a while and he was in developmental, uh, but he never got a chance to shine on the big show. What do you think that is? Probably his mic skills. He, uh, he was young, hadn't really developed uh, a good promo at the time, and I wasn't there, so I don't really know what happened because Wes was definitely on the radar. Wes was one of those guys that we had been looking at and wanted to do something with, just just off of his pedigree alone. And great look, great kid, and, it, you know, it was a shame. I, I don't know exactly what the hell happened there, but if I were to say anything, it would probably be the only thing that would have been holding him back at that young age, was probably his mic skills. Uh, what about your other good friend, Eric Bischoff, and his son, Garrett Bischoff? Um, 
is this nepotism for him to have an opportunity here? What did you think about working with Garrett Bischoff and him as a performer? Well, I thought that uh, Garrett personally, first of all, uh, great guy, stand-up guy, and really hardworking. And Garrett wanted to be a wrestler. Garrett, that was his dream. And it probably was a case of nepotism with Eric, bringing his son in and putting him in that position. Garrett wasn't ready for it. And it was viewed, you know, it's a double-edged sword, especially if you're a second-generation guy. And especially if you're a second-generation talent with the light, with your last name being Bischoff. Bischoff wasn't the most popular guy backstage, wasn't the most popular guy in front of the camera. So fans didn't like him, guys backstage didn't like him and felt that he was taking the spot from them. But Garrett worked his ass off, and he was new. He was fresh. And it was really interesting. When we would do focus groups and get feedback from people, one of the guys that they would look at and say, wow, you know, without knowing who the hell he is, they liked Garrett because he was a good-looking, good-looking young guy with a great body. And they say, hey, you know, I'd like to know more about this guy. Don't know who he is, but good-looking kid. So there was that. But, yeah, it was probably nepotism as well and um, guilty. It's it's uh, it's unfortunate because whether these guys are talented or not doesn't ever really matter because the conversation always starts about, oh, well, you know who his dad is. Right, uh, and, I mean, and that was the same thing with Briscoe because they knew Jerry and I were friends. Oh, and that happens, you know, even now with Charlotte in the WWE. I mean, no matter how long she's been there or how good her matches are or how hard she works, oh, well, it's Rick's daughter, so you know Triple H this or that. So uh, kind of an unfortunate deal for them. Um, since we're talking about young talent, OVW had a relationship with TNA post-WWE. So after years of being the feeder system for WWE, uh, they become a little bit of one for OVW. Is there anything interesting to cover there, or is that something we should just gloss over? No, it was it was just a natural fit, and Danny Davis and I had been friends for years. They ended their relationship with WWE when WWE opened up Florida and the Performance Center down there. It was just a natural transition to be able to take the guy that helped train Brock Lesnar, Randy Orton, John Cena, and a host of others and use that as a feeder and developmental system for TNA. Uh, talking a little bit about um, you know, guys who used to be in the WWE have a relationship there, Dave Lagana is a name that we're familiar with from his time with WWE. He leaves there. He comes to TNA. And very recently, with all of the shakeup that TNA has had, if you believe the rumors and innuendo, uh, there were folks who were on Team Dixie, and then there were folks who were on Team Billy. And apparently, Lagana bet on the wrong horse. Uh, what was your experience like working with Lagana? Do you have any funny or interesting stories you can share? I know you're in touch now. Can you update us as to his current situation? Well, new Dave, since Dave was in the WWE, we worked together on SmackDown. Dave was a writer at WWE, and he worked on SmackDown. He worked on ECW. From there, he went to ROH and then uh, came to TNA via Ringka King, which was a television show that they produced for India that only lasted one season that they thought was going to be the savior for TNA for a little while. But um, Dave, without a place to go, 
and us always looking for help on the creative end of things. We brought Dave into the fold on creative and TNA and helped us write stuff. And I, I dare say that uh, he did a good job there. He's one of those people that will work tirelessly as well and always get the job done. But he helped us produce, he helped us create and write and uh, was an asset. But as far as you know, what's happening now, he's just looking for new avenues and something else to do. And um, towards the end of his stay there, he kind of got the feeling that he really wasn't wanted or welcomed anyway. So it's time to move on. The rumors and innuendo are that towards the end, uh, it's not over, but towards the end of this whole Billy Dixie thing, a lot of the folks who were on team Billy didn't even go into the office. Even if they had previously been going to the office, they were just working from home after that. It was kind of a house divided true or false. True. True. That's, that's what I'd heard that they kind of didn't feel welcomed in the office, but were still doing their jobs and still, still writing the televisions and doing their tasks. Maybe they didn't have room for them at the new warehouse office that they had. I don't know. Uh, have you seen the warehouse office? Lots I have not. Of, tell us about the uh, Cummins Station office. Cummins Station was, they were nice offices. They they had several, uh, I think they were on the third floor there, third or fourth floor. I don't even remember. But uh, they were split-level offices. They were very nice. And then they had the studio down on the in the basement, the first floor. And it was a nice little setup. Uh, one of the uh, things that people enjoy most on this show are your impressions. And you've given us a fair share of impressions of guys who were writing on the WWE team. We've heard your Michael Hayes, doot, 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 and your script. And we've heard Pat Patterson. And we've heard uh, Jim Cornette. I mean, it goes on, Jerry Jarrett. We've gone on and on and on. Do you have a Dave Lagana impression? Well, you know, Conrad. I don't really always do impressions, but uh, sometimes, you know, I think if you have ever watched Friends, well, it doesn't matter. So, no, I, that's that's about it. Now, you know, and as I'm doing that, I'm hearing it, and people are going to sit there and think, is Lagana Indian? I thought the same thing. I'm like, well, wow. <laughs> what about a Vince Russo? Do you have a Vince Russo? I, bro, bro, yo, bro. Hey, yo, bro. What, bro? Bro. Bro. That's all I got. Fucking Yankee. Uh, There, I knocked Vince Vince Russo, but you fucking Yankees will probably think that's a compliment. It's kind of like, see, here's the thing. Here's the thing about Russo. Russo always, and Vince, they always thought it was a knock to call me and anybody from the South a redneck. But I took that as a compliment. I like being called a redneck. Well, they like being called Yankees. I don't get it. Whatever. Uh, here's a guy you can do an impression on that we didn't cover in the last one. I don't know if you have an impression here, but Don West. Uh, Don West is a notable character. Uh, he was around for the, a lot of the beginning, early years of TNA. Uh, he did commentary, and before that, uh, he did a lot of fun stuff uh, with hawking baseball cards on TV. And he be- kind of became the go-to pitch man for all TNA merchandise um, you've kind of told me before about some of the conversations about, you know, money per head on the house shows and, you know, that there was such a big push for the merchandise sales. Can you kind of 
carry us through that whole situation in the office and then tell us about your time spent working with Don West. Well, Don West was probably single-handedly responsible for the house shows being profitable in many regards because of the way that he drove merchandise sales. I had a philosophical difference in the way that uh, merchandise was sold and hawked, I guess, more importantly, at house shows because it was just an endless barrage. You would walk into the building if the doors opened up at 630 and you would be hit with, all right, folks, hey, everybody here tonight, we've got the Dudley boys over at the merchandise table. If you go over there right now, you can get an autograph of them. Velvet Sky up in the northeast corner right now. She's taking pictures, guys. You can get in, get in line right up there, get an autograph of Velvet Sky. Don't forget Abyss at ringside down here. Come on down and say hello to Abyss, get his autograph. And then later on, we're going to be doing backstage passes. If you didn't get a backstage pass earlier today, we're going to be doing backstage passes in the middle of the intermission, and you're going to be able to go backstage. That's right, backstage and meet all the stars of TNA Wrestling. And then after the show, we're going to have Jeff Jarrett come out here. Jeff Jarrett's going to be out here. going to take pictures of the ring, but don't forget Jeff Hardy's here. And Jeff Hardy, if you'd like to get a picture with Jeff Hardy and Matt Hardy, they're going to be available out at the concession stand right after Velvet Sky leaves the Northeast Corner. And you heard that shit nonstop until the show started. And it was annoying. Now, if you know Don West... And you, you get to work with Don West. Don West is is brilliant. He really is. I mean, brilliant guy. He's done very, very well. He and again, hey man, it worked. They sold more merchandise. They made more merchandise than they did at the gate. That's just a cold hard fact. Wait, really? And, yes. And what? I don't know. That just blows me away. Let's run through what yeah. you're saying there. WWE, for instance, on just freestyle some numbers here from memory. If they, if they sold, you know, if they had a $80,000 gate, so ticket sales totaled 80,000 bucks, what would the merch take be that night on an $80,000 house? Usually I'm probably about $15 ahead. What was it? A TNA? About 24 or more. Wow. Percentage-wise, you know, that's a huge difference. But you got to understand. Look, look at the where WWE is drawing eight thousand, or or let's just say, if to, to put it in comparison, the exact comparisons that I used to get from their financial wizards there, that uh, well, WWE only drew five thousand. We're we're drawing five hundred. That's not bad. So. If you are only drawing 500 people to live events, those are 500 diehard fans that are really into your product. So they were willing to spend more money on the ancillary stuff. And they were going to spend more money to go back and get their picture taken with Velvet Sky and uh, wait in line to get a Jeff Hardy autograph and get a picture with him. And it's just the way it was. But... I felt that it diminished the talent to have them that accessible to the audience all the time. Right. It didn't, you know, it, they weren't special anymore. And that, that was my bitch. It, it was just simply one of presentation. And when you're hawking every second, it is a, is a audience member. You just get tired. And Don would wear him out. But, again, you can't argue with success, man. He, he, he did well. 
and a great guy. I mean, really a great, great guy. And he had an opportunity to go, and I think he's a partner in a hockey team in the Northwest somewhere and doing real well. And couldn't happen to a nicer guy. And I'm sure that uh, if if Don West is in in charge of selling something, it's getting sold. Come hell or high water, that shit is gonna get sold. He's a uh, greatest salesman in wrestling. You think? Yes. Well, there you go. There's something nice after some. No, I, I I really and truly now everything I have to say about Don is nice. I just pointed out the difference of opinion and presentation. I didn't care for his presentation in, in live events and in the Hawking stuff all the time. Uh, she's personal. We talked briefly about Kurt angle in the first episode. Uh, but I don't know that we got into who made contact with him first, who had a relationship with him and how did that our initial conversation and then signing, who was the liaison to get Kurt angle in? I don't know. I was, I was at WWF when Kurt went to TNA, but, uh, I'm pretty sure it was Jeff. Um, did you get any sort of feedback from the WWE before you took the TNA gig? We didn't talk about that before. What do you mean? Okay. So you've been out of the company for a little bit and now you're going to take a job with TNA. Do you smarten anybody up? Do you send a text message? Do you have a phone call? Does the news break on the internet and someone texts you? Do you get a call? When do you communicate with Vince or anyone about you working somewhere other than WWE now? Um, well, I didn't, I didn't have any communication with them prior to me going to work there and probably a month or two after I went to work there, I saw Vince in Houston, Just at uh, WWE had an event okay, and, and we met after the show and just, uh, first, it was the first time that we had seen each other and or spoke since I'd left in 2008. And that was what year? That would have been 2000 and I want to say it was at the end of 2010, maybe the beginning of 2011. So after working with this guy, like personally, directly for over 20 years, you didn't talk to him for roughly two years and then just saw him after the show. That'd be correct. Did he ask you to come to the show or did you ask to see him after? I probably asked to see him. It was, it was uh, one of those deals where I reached out just to say hello, and they were in town, and let's have a drink. And where did you meet him? Hotel bar? Met him at the hotel. Um, no communication with any of the other comrades that you're friends with? Dude, dude, dude doesn't text you when he finds out that you got a gig at TNA or no communication at all? No, actually, Michael did. Uh, several of the writers did. Congratulated me and wished me well. Um, I'm curious. There's a gap between your employment with WWE and TNA. I know you did some other stuff. Was there interest in you going to TNA from their side right away and you kept your distance just in case? Or what was the angle there? Legally, I couldn't do anything for a period of time. Okay. But but Jeff Jarrett and I spoke within days of, of my release. And then when the timing was right, based on some other things, and that legal clause had passed, there was an opportunity, and let's go for it. Correct. 
Uh, there's rumors and innuendo that, and lots of people stir this up online, that uh, Vince Russo has said you would be in Dixie's ear looking for his job. Correct that or don't. Well, no, it's 100% false. And it's interesting because when I was put in the position of Russo having to answer to me and having to have the scripts and everything approved by me, the day that everybody found out, I had flown in and I was in Tennessee in Nashville and Eric Bischoff was also there, which was unusual. But, uh, Russo was there again. Russo lived in Colorado. So all, all three of the outsiders were in town at the same time and they had a meeting and I believe it was with Vince Russo first and then Eric Bischoff and then me. So Russo got the news of what they wanted to do before I did. Then Eric got it. And then they called me in and said, Hey, here's what we would like to do. Well, I'm in a position where frankly, I needed a job and I was happy with the job that I had. But now they're telling me they would like for me to take on some new responsibilities. There was more money involved, more responsibility, and I wasn't going to turn it down. So I, I accepted the position. But there was in absolutely no way, zero, zilch, none. Did I lobby for the position? Did I go in and whisper in Dixie's ear? and tell her that I wanted to do this in any way, shape, or form. They came to me, and they came to me after they went to Russo and Eric. Okay. So that's just the way it, it really went down. Uh, let's clear up some other stuff. Um, Claire Lynch was briefly touched on in our previous episode where we said that maybe this is where AJ showed some of his acting chops that ultimately helped WWE think. Hey, maybe this guy can do our kind of stuff. Uh, the rumors and innuendo would lead you to believe that what we saw on television and the way that whole angle wound up is not what the original plan was. Kind of catch everybody up briefly on what the original plan was, and then we'll get to some more stuff. Well, the original plan was to use Dixie in that and to build up more that AJ was having an affair with Dixie and a lurid affair, but that kind of got blown out of the water when uh, the Carters had to face people at their country club. And I'm not, this is not an analogy that not make anything up. This is just shoot what happened. Uh, people at the club were questioning the Carters about what's this. I hear about your daughter and your sister being a whore and, uh, sleeping with this guy, AJ styles and, and, they didn't like that. So we had to change course and introduce Claire Lynch and just went in a different direction. And I, I'm ashamed to say this, but I kind of lost interest after it and let let Dave uh, Lagana and Matt Conway and them have fun with it and do what they wanted to do. Because it's one of those deals where... Okay, folks, if you're taking a drink, that, that, yeah. was, that was a cue, where... I had laid it out ahead of time, exactly what we wanted to do. Everybody's on board, and then you get into it and you do it, and they can't take the heat. So, fuck it. Uh, you mentioned him a few times, Matt Conway. Tell everybody who that is and what he does. Matt Conway was uh, a writer with Vince Russo. 
and Matt was a writer while I was there. I enjoyed working with Matt. Matt's a creative kid. He started, he was a disciple of Andy Barton, who was, Andy was vice president in charge of event operations and things like that. And Dixie took a liking to Matt. And when I got there, it was Matt and Vince Russo that were writing the TV. When Russo left, I kept Matt on. And he was a creative guy, always had good ideas, and busted his ass to get the product done. Uh, the six-sided ring, who liked it, who hated it? Uh, what did you think about it? Dixie liked it. Jeff liked it. I think they were the only ones for the most part. It wasn't there when I got there. We had the traditional four-sided ring by the time I got there. But the feedback that I got from the talent, because there would be times that Dixie would come back and say, gosh, can we go back to the six-sided ring and be different than WWE? I would get feedback from talent, and most of them, if they had their choice, preferred the four-sided ring. Because the six-sided ring, the construction of it, it was an unforgiving ring, not a bump-friendly ring. A lot more, a lot more steel underneath. Yes, and it, it just didn't have as much give. So the guys preferred uh, the four-sided ring, and I had no, I had no desire to bring the six-sided monstrosity back. Um, Toby Keith, what's real and what's rumor? Don't know. I wasn't there. I mean, I, I heard rumblings after. I left that uh, Toby had a deal and everyone had agreed to a deal for him to buy the company. And when he got to the table to actually do it, they started putting conditions like, well, Dixie has to stay involved and be president, be on TV. And they weren't looking for that. But that's, to clarify, that's all from my vantage point, that secondhand rumor and innuendo. And throughout because I, I think this will be your next follow-up question is, well, were there ever attempts to sell the company? And when I was there, there were always attempts to have investors and have more people invest in the company. And it was Dixie's goal to buy the company from her parents outright so that she could own it completely. And, run things the way she wanted to without Dallas's interference. So she was always looking for investors and always looking for people to come in and put money into the company. I made the suggestion one time um, in passing, well, not in passing, in a meeting, and I said, would you like for me to put feelers out and see if WWE would be interested in purchasing the company? What year would that and be in? Probably 2012. Okay. And Dixie's comment back to me was, well, maybe uh, we might want to buy WWE. And that was the end of that conversation, and I never brought it up again. Uh, so when you're saying, you know, they were always looking for investors, what you really mean is they were looking for suckers who would give them their money to keep funding this fucking wet dream of a company that wasn't actually profitable, but not willing to overturn any sort of management that could actually turn it around and make a profit. Ding, ding, ding. Uh, the rumors in innuendo are that um, they got all the way down to almost check writing time on the Toby Keith deal, but he wanted new management. And then at the 11th hour, Dixie... Uh, or her representatives to say she has to stay in place as president and remain an on-air character, and that ultimately was the deal-breaker. Is that the same rumor and innuendo you heard? 
That is. Okay. Um, the lockdown pay-per-views in 11 and 12 were all cage matches. A lot of hardcore wrestling fans think this is the fucking dumbest thing ever. You're supposed to, based on what we've all, as fans, been taught, you build to a cage match and you you have a match that needs a cage. Uh, you don't have a card or a pay-per-view that needs cage matches uh, or, or however that analogy goes. I'm not feeling well. I'm not myself. I apologize. Catch me up. What did you think as a long, as an old timer, as you said, referred to yourself in wrestling for two entire cards to be filled with cage matches? Hated it for all the reasons you just said. A cage match should be special and there should be build and there should be meaning behind it. And what, you know, you should build to see it. If you have a entire card full of cage matches after the second one, there's nothing left to do. And it's not special anymore. I thought it was one of the stupidest ideas. And finally we got them to got them away from it. We only had one in 2013 in San Antonio. And I thought that was a much better presentation. Who liked it made it? it mean something. Who liked it? Who liked what? The the concept of all cage matches? Yes. Dixie liked it. Uh, I think Matt Conway liked it, and I think that's about where it ended. Is there anything else you can remember, Sealy, that Dixie really liked? The X Division. What did she say about the X Division that annoyed you? Or what about her love of the X Division annoyed you? My annoyance with the X division is to this day, not one single person has been able ever to explain to me what the hell it is. You know, it's no limits. There's no weight limits. There's no age. I don't know what the fuck it is. It's no different than any other division. So there was nothing special about it. Nobody could tell me what the hell it is. And, um, I, I just didn't get it. I, I really didn't get it. That annoyed the hell out of me. And there were, I'm trying to think what the hell else, but she had, well, we've always done it that way. It doesn't make it right. Right. You know, okay. Well, okay, Dixie. Well, if everybody else goes and jumps off the bridge, is that okay for you to go jump off the bridge? Oh, no, it was stupid. we got lots of tweets about awesome Kong and Bubba the love sponge. I know what you're going to say. Go ahead and say it. I wasn't there. Um, let's talk briefly about the United Kingdom. Uh, you talked about cage matches should be special. I always felt that TNA's television shows they taped over in England came off as special. I'm curious, why didn't they just tape all their TV over there? I mean, they're selling tickets. The crowds are rabid. They have a huge appetite for it. Rather than be number two in America, why not go be number one in England? Uh, am I just oversimplifying that or did others share that same worldview? I pitched that, and the idea was, I mean, it makes sense. It just made sense. They were number one in the U.K. They were number one in Germany. It was a strong brand internationally. And why not go there, grab the money, give it to them. They're hot for it. They want it. Let's go give it to them. Let's get something out of it with a rabid fan base, rabid crowd, Let's go tape some really good stuff. Bring it back here and give the states a rest. Give them a rest. They'll be happy and they'll be longing for you if you stay away long enough. Not too long, but go away for six months to a year. Go international where there was a little bit of a demand 
and where they were drawing houses. So that was suggested, but there was, I, I think the main reason, the best thing I could say is it was out of fear. Fear of what? Didn't do that. Fear of what? Fear of failure. And maybe they felt that it cost too much. Well, let's talk about that. What would, what would the cost difference have been? I know that you had a, a slightly built-in advantage because the Universal Studios set, you don't have to rebuild and take down. It's just there. Uh, so that's good. And I'm sure airfare super cheap to Orlando. I think it's the Southwest hub. Uh, I know there's flights from Nashville there for like 30 bucks or something insane. Um, but what besides airfare and the actual building are the cost differences and aren't all of those, not all the majority of those offset by, you know, selling fucking tickets. Yes. And but there was always, we always paid for hotels. We always paid for transportation while the guys were overseas. And I think that that still would have been absorbed in drawing a house and making money off of a live gate. There wasn't a penny made off of the live gates in Orlando. Yeah, they, they did travel packages and they would sell 10 tickets to a VIP meet and greet after the fact. But there was no real money made at all. That was free. It was an attraction at Universal Studios. If you if you line up at Hard Rock Cafe or NASCAR Cafe or wherever the hell they lined up, you got in free. You didn't even have to purchase a ticket to Universal Studios. So to me, that was a non-issue, and I felt that it was a lost opportunity not to go over there and um, satiate the appetite. And then come back to the States, do the same thing, and have a new plan. As JR used to say, go away and learn a new hole. Oh, well, there's a fun transition there, but I'm going to avoid it. Let's talk about TV deals. Um, you and I have talked about this off air before, and I guess that there were really accurately three types of television deals as far as the way the money goes. Can you kind of break down to everybody what that would be? Well, essentially... Back in the old days, there were times where for the old timers, those guys would have their TV shows on in a barter system. And the barter system was simply they would put their television show on, and in any television show, you've got X amount of commercial time. The promoter would sell half of the commercial time. The TV station would sell half of the commercial time. Then comes Vince McMahon, and Vince McMahon is expanding throughout the country, and all of a sudden Vince McMahon is coming in, and he's paying money for that commercial time, or paying money for that time slot that the other wrestling promotions were in. And, and that, would, initially and that Vince, would net the TV station more money in that situation. Correct. Okay. And also, you know, during that time, there was also the beginning of the infomercial. And the infomercial changed television because now you've got advertisers coming in and doing 30-minute shows and blocks selling one product, and the whole damn thing is a commercial, and they're paying good money for it. So where a television station might say, well, I can go out and I can buy uh, Seinfeld or I can buy another 30-minute strip sitcom, and I've got to go out and sell that time for X amount of dollars, or... Ron Popeil 
and the pasta maker is going to come in and they're going to pay me $6,000 for that time slot and I don't have to do shit. And it's $6,000 a profit. So there was that changing attitude. Well, Vince came in, started paying for time slots, and then all of a sudden his uh, television starts getting over, the business gets bigger, and he goes back to him and says, hey, we're not going to pay you anymore, but if you want to continue to have our show and continue to get the kind of ratings you're getting with our show, you're going to start paying us. And then the product became uh, a rights product where they – had television stations that would pay and networks that would pay a rights fee. WWE gets a rights fee for Monday Night Raw and SmackDown and everything they do. They get paid to produce those shows. TNA, when it was at Spike TV, they had a rights fee. They were paid a weekly fee to be on the air, and that fee, that's right, that rights fee is what enabled them to continue to stay in business and be profitable throughout their I don't know if they were profitable or not, but it allowed them to, well, stay on the air. So you fast forward and you go back 2013 after I left, and the deal with Spike TV was coming to an end. So Spike TV decides that they're not going to renew their current contract with TNA. They say, we don't want anymore. So TNA is now in a position where they have no place to air their television show. They get picked up by Destination America. Rumor and innuendo would have you believe that the rights fee that was paid by Destination America was about a quarter of what they were making at Spike TV. And then when that deal blew up, they went to Pop TV. And it's in Dixie Carter's legal uh, statement in the lawsuit between her and Billy Corrigan that the pop TV deal is a barter deal. And what that means is, is that TNA produces a two-hour show. They get half of the advertising time, and pop TV gets half of the advertising time to sell and do with what they want. So TNA is not getting any money from Pop TV to have their show on the air, according to the court documents that were filed. And as you know, you know, um, I had told you this way back when, because I'd heard, but it was all secondhand rumor and innuendo. But that secondhand rumor and innuendo turned out to be correct. So... Uh, that's a situation that, that they are in now, and as you and I both know as well, trying to buy time on TNA, on Pop TV, is damn near an impossibility. It certainly is trying to buy it from TNA, because we tried to do that. Uh, we're going to get questions about it, so let's just uh, kind of spill the beans. I'm an asshole, and I am a shameless promoter. He, he is, folks. He really is. If you know me from my mortgage business, I am just shameless when it comes to self-promotion for my business. And I had an idea uh, when Bruce was in town once when we were watching the Hardy Boys because, man, we love delete, delete, delete. And uh, Broken Matt and all that that's brought us this year, uh, best thing in wrestling this year to me. Anyway, uh, we're watching that and came up with an idea. And I said, hey, man. How cool would it be if we did an episode on TNA and we promoted it inside the TNA show? 
And this was an idea that I got from reading the Wrestling Observer Newsletter where Dave had published what he thought or he had heard the rate was for a 30-second spot. So Bruce and I got busy trying to buy a commercial from TNA uh, and then eventually from Pop TV to promote this very podcast on that show. And, you know, we had the production ability and, you know, we didn't need any help producing a spot. We got that down pat. That's what I do for a living. Uh, but we couldn't get a straight answer out of anybody. We emailed somebody we've talked about already today and asked about buying a spot. And I think the, I'm paraphrasing, but I think the gist of the email was, I wouldn't know who to contact about that. True that. So anyway, for what it's worth, we did eventually get a quote from pop TV and it was a much higher number than what David reported. I'm not saying that to crap on the observer. Uh, I but thought, the observer was wrong. Well, no, maybe not. Let's run through that. It may, the quote he got may have been a part of a bigger package. It may have been a longer schedule. It may have been a longer term buy. It may have been an, an, you know, an existing customer that other customer may have had a lot of tonnage and they just got that number off of an affidavit. Uh, I know for certain when I advertise, uh, I spend less than some others do just because I buy so much and so far ahead. Uh, so I know that that type of stuff exists either way. Uh, don't be surprised in the future. If you see a, um, a commercial on TNA promoting something to wrestle with, uh, you know what? Maybe if TNA advertised on our show, more people would watch. They might ha- they might get more people to watch. Yeah, we're dicks for saying that, but it is worth mentioning that this show does a I multiple said it. I'm a dick. of the viewers. Um, okay, let's talk real quick about a couple of more controversial things, and then we'll wrap this one up. We'll put a bow on it. Uh, Jesse Sorensen, since I can't hashtag Ask Dixie, I'll ask you. Uh, let's catch everybody up if you're not familiar with this name. Uh, he was a performer who was with the company uh, in February at an Against All Odds show in 2013. Uh, Zima Ion did uh, a pretty standard run-of-the-mill uh, move from the ring down to the floor. When he hit Sorensen, Sorensen fell funny. Uh, immediately, anybody watching would recognize, uh-oh, something's wrong. And that something was with his vertebrae and spinal cord. Uh, he was... Um, and maybe explicitly, maybe not explicitly, it was certainly implied that he would have a job with TNA for life. Uh, TNA does um, find him an office job, or that's what the rumors and innuendo would have you believe, that he was an assistant and worked in the office. And then he was removed from the website and a month later released. Uh, you were there, Bruce. Uh, tell me about when the injury happens. Uh, what happened with his hospital situation when this compromise is made or, you know, the pivot to, hey, we're going to keep him a job. Uh, I'm going to ask a money question. Was he making about the same money? And then when he's gone from the company, what were your, what was your reaction? Kind of catch us up and fill us in the blanks on all things Jesse Sorensen. Well, when Jesse got hurt, it was a freak accident. It was a move that they'd done before, and it was simply Zima Ion that hit Jesse on top of his head and crushed his vertebrae. Had it gone the other way, we would be having a completely different conversation right now, and Jesse wouldn't be here. And it was a freak accident, and it was exactly that. It was an accident. And 
very unfortunate one, but I was in the truck when it took place and ran out to ringside. I asked Bernie, who was the liaison at Universal Studios, to call an ambulance, call 911. And people were pretty quick, on Johnny on the spot, to get to Jesse, but he wasn't moving. And when we left him that night at the hospital, he was essentially paralyzed from the neck down in a bad way. We didn't know if, if that kid would ever walk again. And it was a sad, horrible situation. But um, throughout it, um, I, I dare say that Jesse Sorensen is a miracle because he, he was able to walk out. And he's able to walk, train, and he's still wrestling. We were in a position where no matter what kind of shape he got himself into that, and I told him this personally, that I would not bring him back to wrestle because I know what the injury was and I know how susceptible that he was to injuring himself further. And I didn't want that to be on my hands. And the doctor that was there that night would have been the one that would have had to clear him. And he wasn't about to clear him. So... It was a, a rough position, and as time went on, Jesse really wanted to wrestle. He needed to work. They did give him a, a spot where he was working at the television tapings in an assistant role and an opportunity to learn behind the scenes the production end of the business. And he was paid the same thing that he was paid off of his contract, which is, in my opinion, the least the company could have done. Well, no, that's and, solid, though. I mean, that was that was. I mean, that's a good thing for TNA to do. Why would you say that's the least they could do? Because it's the least they could do. Well, I mean, you said the, that like the guy, a guy gets injured on your, on your watch in, in your ring and your conditions. And, and again, it was an accident, but I guess coming from WWE, if the same thing had happened in WWE, there would have been no question. Um, he would have been taken care of for a long, long time would have been taken care of very well. But is that based on economics or, you know, uh, indifference? It's based on economics, but it's also based on the human beings making the decisions at the highest level there. Do you think that um, you, when you talk about a guy who was hurt in your ring and you kind of credited WWE, you know, Marty Jannetty's out there walking around on his fucking ankle right now. Why is Vince allowing that to happen? Well, I don't know what – I have absolutely no idea what Marty's injuries are. And if I dare say if Marty had an injury, that a specific injury that took place that debilitated him in the WWE ring, that Vince probably would have taken care of it. And back then, back in the day, you know, guys hid those injuries because the fear was that you worked, you worked hurt and – if you didn't, their fear was, well, I'm going to lose my spot. So they'd tape it up, and guys would Bruce, yeah, hide injuries. No, that's that's the truth. That's what I, guys I, did. I know that's what they did, but you can't have it both ways and say, oh, WWE would take care of them, but then. What I'm saying oh, is, is how, how do we know that Marty them. didn't have that injury after he left WWE somewhere else? Because he taped it up because he was afraid of losing his spot. How do you know that? Okay, what are they doing for draws today, 2016? They made a huge settlement with Draws and took real good care of Draws for many years and made a settlement with him that he agreed to long so, after that. Took right. care of Draws for many, many years. So let's talk about that. Why have we not seen a Jesse Sorensen lawsuit against TNA? Did they make a settlement that we haven't heard about? Legally, I can't get into it. But, okay, uh, so that's a that, yes. So uh, we're going to play rumors and innuendo. Bruce Pritchard didn't say that. Conrad, 
direct your hate tweets to at hey hey it's conrad the only way there's not a lawsuit out of this uh just putting the, the simple math together is that there was a settlement done so hypothetically let's go down this rumors and innuendo uh, rabbit hole. Well, hypothetically, maybe a, a release versus a settlement per se, but I guess settlement might be hypothetically what you might call what you're calling. Well, with this release, was there hypothetically a check involved? Hypothetically, probably. Would. Okay, let me back up here. Did T and I cover all of his medical bills? <sighs> Jesse would say no. Would Jesse Je- has said no. Would Jesse or his family have been in? Um, Jesse's poor mother went bankrupt. Okay, so that answers that. They didn't pay the medical bills. Um, when this settlement is reached, does someone from Nashville stick this piece of paper in his face? No one from Nashville handled that. No, that was taken Alleg- out of corporate alleg- office. Allegedly. Allegedly, yeah. Hypothetically, somebody from Texas does this. Is this a Carter, hypothetically, or is this an attorney representing the Carters? You'd have to guess on that one. But I don't see either one of the Carters making a trip from Texas. Okay, so it's an attorney, and he he probably makes a cash offer. Hypothetically, does this happen in a hospital bed? Hypothetically, it could. All right. Hypothetically, does this check have six digits or five? It's a rumor. It's innuendo. Yeah, I don't know. I think. I don't know. I didn't see any check. I didn't see any statement or uh, release or anything like that. So Were there rumors? In anything the anything to that would, would strictly be rumor and innuendo. That... The rumors and innuendo um, in the office... When, did you ever hear of any of any rumors or innuendo that they had settled, that they had handled this, that it was taken care of, so to speak? Yes, I was. Well, no, I was point blank told that it was all taken care of. Who told you that? Several people. Can I guess it was Dean Broadhead, who's the CFO? That'd probably be one of the people. Um, and would you have said, "Hey, what are we doing with this?" or "How are we handling this?" or were you there when he was released? I was not there when Jesse was released. No. Uh, did Jesse reach out to you once he was released or once you left? Yes, he did. What did your conversation with Jesse consist of? Well, Jesse was just like kind of, what the fuck? Um, he was taken aback because he, he didn't see it coming, didn't expect it, and had been told that he would be taken care of and had been told that he would have a job as long as he wanted a job. And he still wanted a job. So I don't know what their rationale was, what their thinking process was for letting him go. That's that's something that was decided after I'd left. And Bruce, it's clearly a cost-cutting measure, is it not? I would assume so, yeah. But still. Now, let's talk about that from a cost-cutting measure. Take, take the water coolers out. I don't know. Well, that's what I was going to say. I'm not saying this to shit on Mr. Sorensen or diminish his role or his contributions to TNA. But I would be guessing that his compensation would have been less than $5,000 a month. If I had to ballpark it, I would say $3,000 a month. And when you have $3,000 a month going out as just goodwill to take care of one of the guys who, you know, really sacrificed for you and really did a good job, it seems like you might try to find a way to utilize him. It's not like he's making Hulk Hogan money. And if we're in cost-cutting mode, 
slashing this is going to mean the difference between can we do this taping or not. It means, hey, maybe we don't cater the show next week. I agree with you. Okay. Uh, overall, how would you say TNA handled the Jesse Sorensen situation? Shitty. Anything else you want to touch on on Sorensen? Or the no, I think it's been touched it? on to death, you know, between between Jesse and Dixie and all that crap, and it's just an unfortunate situation. It really is. It sucks. Did you have a specific conversation with uh, Dixie about Jesse? Well, I had, I had lots of them uh, at the time, but it was I was led to believe that it was all being taken care of at a higher level, and that it was you know. When I say taken care of, I was led to believe that they were taking care of all of his expenses, whatever that may be. Hypothetically, if someone broke their neck, you've made this um, comparison a long time ago, and you've kind of carried it for a while now. I heard it recently on the Jim Cornette experience. You have said that someone in Texas at Panda compared an independent contracted wrestler with a plumber. And if you have a contract to build a building, plumbers plumb, it's a job they do. And if one isn't doing the job, you just get another plumber and then the job still gets done. And they kind of correlated that with the independent contractor relationship of impact wrestling and a professional wrestler. Is that fair to say? No, that's exactly true. That's what they said. That was the analogy that was made to me. So here's a question. Hypothetically, somebody at Panda Energy who's working on the energy side of the business, the profitable side, not impact. They're working for Panda energy. If they break their fucking neck, is it handled the same way? I, I guess so. I don't know. Would you think that that would be handled the same way? Or do you think that they viewed wrestling as knowing how they conduct business? It wouldn't surprise me. There wow. you go. Okay, let's talk about something else a little controversial, the Daphne situation. Uh, Daphne was uh, injured uh, while she was working for TNA. A lot of people may remember her from WCW. Uh, She started as a valet, then did some in-ring stuff. And ultimately, uh, she winds up in a situation where she has a workers' compensation lawsuit or claim with TNA. And then the rumors and innuendo would believe that she actually had a lawsuit with the company that was eventually settled. Uh, do you have any insight as to what you can separate from rumors and innuendo here? Well, as far as Daphne goes, um, she was there when I got there, but I really don't remember because I was just doing backstage production and things of that nature, and I didn't have any interaction with her that I remember. Maybe I did, said hello, and we might have done something, but I can't recall i don't think that uh i don't think i was there when she was hurt but it uh did result in a lawsuit whatever it was and my only involvement in in the lawsuit was being made aware of it and that's that's about it i I didn't have a whole lot to do with that situation other than you know hey she's uh she's suing us okay let's freestyle some rumors and innuendo here let's just get to it There's rumors and innuendo that she had a personal relationship with Terry Taylor. Terry Taylor is gone from the company uh, shortly after you get there. Um, And there's supposedly, and I don't know that this happened, this is message board bullshit maybe, but there's rumors and innuendo that he's on tape advising her of exactly what to do to get the company to settle. 
was there talk in the office that such a tape existed or that they had some other form of evidence that Terry Taylor was in her ear about how to squeeze money out of the company? I've, I've heard those rumors and innuendo, but I never heard any tape and I don't know if that exists or not, but I, I did hear those same rumor and innuendo. Uh, I don't know when we'll talk about him again. Do you have uh, any sort of interesting story that you want to share that you can share right now that could kind of shed some light on Terry Taylor? No. What not time, interesting. What time is it right now? <laughs> not not going to tell that story yet. <laughs> not time for that story yet. Okay. There is a good story out there, ladies and gentlemen, about we'll Terry We'll tell that Taylor. when we cover Brother Love. Oh, I like it. Okay. Good deal. Um... Overall, anything else you want to add about Terry Taylor here? No. Uh, how would If I was asking Jerry Jarrett, how do you feel about Terry Taylor, what would Jerry Jarrett say? Well, he, well he, you know. What could he have done, you know, to kind of turn this chicken shit gimmick of the Red Rooster into something maybe a little better? Huh? Well, you know, I mean... There's this old expression, turn chicken sit, chick, chicken shit into chicken salad. I'm, well, you take what you do is you, you take the the chicken, you know, right, and with well, and you know, and with the walnut, you know, and you chop chop up the walnuts, you know, well, you know, sure, and then you get the grapes, and you cut, you, well, you know, and you cut the grapes, and then you you get the the mayonnaise, oh. you know. Well, you know, when you little salt and pepper, and you know, and then you mix it up, and yeah, well, yeah you know, chickens, you know, salad, you know. Is TNA going to be part of the legacy of Jerry Jarrett? You think he deserves it? Uh, Nigel McGinnis, man, lots of mystery around this guy. Uh, I have always been full disclosure. I was always a big fan of Nigel McGinnis in Ring of Honor. Uh, I spent a uh, a lot of time. Uh, enjoying his stuff. And then he eventually makes his way to TNA. And there was lots of question marks about the end of his career. And we're not going to just tiptoe around it. It came out that uh, he had hepatitis and he has a phenomenal documentary that kind of carries you through the end of his in-ring career called the last of McGinnis. If you haven't seen it, it's worth checking out. It is a little depressing um, just because it's a guy's dream dying right there on camera. And he's very real about it. But for whatever reason, people were very hush-hush about this hepatitis situation. Uh, I know it doesn't have the best reputation, and, it, and it, uh, it obviously hurt his career. But, you know, just in real life, people, you know, think of this as like a dirty disease. Um, kind of carry me through when you first hear about his situation and what led to the end of his run in TNA. Well, as, as you said, he's, he was diagnosed with uh, hepatitis, and that came out of a blood test for, I believe, it was the State Athletic Commission. I don't know which one, but they did big series of blood tests for the athletic commissions that required that once a year. And Nigel's apparently had come back that he had hepatitis, and he couldn't work. He couldn't get licensed anywhere. And with that knowledge, TNA couldn't allow him to continue to compete in the ring with the threat of him 
um, bleeding or spreading that, that disease. So they couldn't use him anymore. And they tried to use him in, um, as a color commentator. They tried to use him for some different things, but it just didn't, didn't work. Well, let's get to it. Uh, he was a commentator on Explosion, and you've told me a story off the air that I think people need to hear. Uh, the rumors and innuendo, actually it's not. You just told me. You guys were ha- you had him making good money for what he was going to be doing on a B-show, which was Explosion, and you were honoring your wrestling payday to him at, in that role. And then he started to make some unusual requests or demands and you shut that shit down. Can you carry us through that story and the actual day when you kind of lower the hammer, what hit, what your back and forth with him was that day? Well, Nigel had, had come in. His only role in the company was he was doing some commissioner thing for Explosion, which was a third world <laughs> television show, basically. But it was their secondary show and, and not really seen by a lot of people. Um except internationally. It, it did have some distribution internationally. And Nigel was was showing up later and later to TV tapings, and the guys that worked there would have to be there at 1 o'clock, and Nigel, who was local, couldn't show up till 3, 4 o'clock in the afternoon sometimes. And I had a talk with Nigel and said, you know, man, I don't know what to do with you. You, you can't work. And he kept trying to convince us that he was okay to work and that he has a doctor. And I said, man, it doesn't matter. You, it's out there. And the blood test is what the blood test is. So you can get a doctor that says you can do it, but our doctor says no. Right. Um, so th- this goes on, and I'm asking him to show up on time to do what he needs to do or figure out. And he explains to me that he was auditioning for theater for parts in a play. And there were several plays that he wanted to participate in and that he had auditions that he had to go to during the day and couldn't get to work where he was paid money to show up for on time because he was auditioning for plays. That was my, essentially my out because I said, well, great. You know what? Rather than us stand in your way and, and us, rather than having us having to ask you to show up to work, you know, two or three hours earlier to do your job that you're getting a check for, why don't we just give you your release and, uh, you can be on your way and you can continue to pursue your theatrical dreams. And his response is, well, it's community theater. And I'm just thinking to myself, this fucking guy is going auditioning for community theater. Free plays. And yeah, and risking his job where he's getting a check with zeros on it. A comma in it. A comma in it. And he can't show up to work because he's auditioning for a role in the community theater. So when he's doing this, or when this conversation happens, uh, you have this edict from the top, Hey, we're supposed to be cutting the budget. And now you have a guy who is choosing community service essentially over a paid deal 
where you're really just trying to give him something to do to be a nice guy and you feel a little taken advantage of, and it's a little bit like a slap in the face. Is that fair to sum up? That's fair. So when you tell him, Hey, no, um, best of luck with your community theater. We're going to part ways. What happens? (laughs) It just took him forever to leave. And he, it just, it was awkward. It was just weird, but he, he just felt that he was owed a job for whatever reason. And he wanted us to, to change the way that we did business so that he can continue to do community theater work and, and whatever else he wanted to do with us. And it just wasn't going to work that way. Uh, have you spoken to Nigel since you cut him? No. He's going to bury you after this. You're in the loop on that, okay. right? Okay. Okay. I mean, uh, I don't know what he can bury me for. I, I just simply told the truth and told the story of how everything happened. Where do you watch a movie? Yeah, the movie place. Come on, the say. movie theater. What the hell do you say? I don't know. I just like the way you say theater. Um, okay, so you now. and Shane McMahon. Shane McMahon is the only other person alive that's ever given me shit about the way I say theater. Well, hey, we have we have a lot in common then. Uh, let's run through this. We got two things left to get to, and then I'm done. Uh, well, I guess one thing, let me just mention this cause we're going to get tweets about it. If I don't mention it, I know what you're going to say. Go ahead and say it. What'd you like about working with Kevin Nash and TNA? Kevin's uh, last day was my first day and Kevin was gone while I was there. Okay. Um, the TNA hall of fame. You have told me a couple of stories about this that just blow my mind, and I want you to share them with everybody. Uh, one, how the idea comes about. Two, the situation with this watch. Three, the guest speaker uh, for the Hall of Fame, the, the person who was going to induct Sting and how that came about. And then the way the talent was handled at the actual hall of fame can you kind of run us through that because this is just a fascinating look into all things tna to me well dixie wanted you know to do all things you know uh want to do all things wwe i guess and she wanted to have a hall of fame it had only been 10 years but by god she wanted to have a hall of fame and instead of inducting what in most of our opinion would have been the logical inductee at that time that being jeff jarrett she wanted to induct Sting. And so, by God, we were going to induct Sting. And that was all. I mean, it was one guy at a pay-per-view that we had out in Phoenix. And as we got closer to it, it, it kind of became the question of what the hell are we going to do? What What is the Hall of Fame induction? They were selling tickets to an event, to a Hall of Fame, inducting Sting. But God forbid I ask the question, okay, what is that? Just out of curiosity, what, what is this that we are selling tickets to? And the answer is, well, it'll be a nice presentation, a dinner, and, and we'll induct Sting into the Hall of Fame. It's okay. What exactly does that entail? And the only thing that had been thought out at that point was essentially that we would all get together and give Sting a watch and everybody's happy. So people are going to pay to eat dinner and have uh, dried chicken from the Marriott and 
watch Dixie Gift Sting a watch. So I tried to get together with folks and tried to come up with some kind of a presentation and tried to do something special for Sting, who is deserving of a Hall of Fame, whether it be TNA or WWE or WCW, whatever. He is a Hall of Famer. His career is worthy of that. So as I'm trying to lay out a presentation, so, well, who's going to induct him? Who, who can we have from his past? Who can we have from his career? Now, we have Hulk. And we've got Hulk, and that's a good one. But since you only have one guy, what is your show to the audience that is paying money to come and sit down and see this thing? So we wanted to have more people involved other than Hulk and Dixie. So we got AJ involved, and then the suggestion was made, what about Lex Luger? Because Lex Luger was an integral part of Sting's history. They were good friends and thought it would be nice to have Lex there. And she was fine with that, but... Where it became tricky was when I said, well, how much can we pay Lex? And she was a little dumbfounded at the suggestion that we might have to pay him anything. Which I was a little dumbfounded that she was dumbfounded because I'm sitting there thinking that here's a guy who's sitting home not doing anything. I don't know that he was hard up, but he was maybe in need of money. Could have used the money. And I didn't want to insult him by saying, hey, you want to come out and eat some really shitty chicken at the Marriott and induct your buddy into the Hall of Fame? Uh, we'll, pay, we'll pay your airline ticket, but you're going to have to room with Bob Ryder. Um, you know, I just didn't feel that was the way to approach this thing. Um, finally got him a payday, and we agreed to pay him something. But the interesting thing, I had a little show, just Wait, a program you, so laid you out. you said right there, pay him something, which implies what you wound up paying him, you had to kind of beat her up about to get him a little more? Yes. Okay. And so we were, we're trying to lay this whole thing out, and I'm, I'm talking in generalities about, well, we've got all the talent there, and, and she's like, the, the question comes back to me. Hey, before, I don't want to cut you off again. I'm sorry to do this. Luger didn't ask for any money. I want to clarify that. No, he didn't. Yeah, but, so, but I didn't want to go to him and ask him sure. to do this without offering him money. Well, I just don't want somebody to hear this and think, oh, and then Luger was negotiating for more money. That's not what Absolutely happened. Absolutely not. You no. just wanted to go and, and – because and, Vince pays guys five grand to do the deal. I don't think that that's so super kayfabe number. If you participate in the Hall of Fame, you're getting a check for five grand. Thanks for playing. Uh, I assume that the TNA check was a fraction of that, whatever you guys gave Luger. But even getting that to that point was a struggle with Dixie. Yes. Okay, got it. I didn't want to cut you off. I just didn't want the the board to say, oh, Luger negotiated more money. No, not true. No. And so going forward, I'm, I'm trying to lay out stuff, and, and the subject of talent comes up. And – Someone, and I don't even remember who asked, so you can ask me. I, I really don't remember who asked. But they said, well, do we take the, do we deduct from the talent's pay for the Hall of Fame banquet? How should we do that? Oh, my God. The dinner, the shitty chicken, and the unsweet tea? Yes. You know, I'm thinking to myself, you've got to, this is, this is a rib. And I'm like, well, no, because it's like $24 or $28 a head. Wow. And you want talent to be there and eat for free? So it was um, 
it was an uphill battle. And finally, as I went through the craziness of asking talent to show up, if you'd like to go to the Hall of Fame, which they should want to go to the Hall of Fame and induct Sting and be there, I'm not going to ask them to pay $30 for shitty chicken and unsweet tea. And once we get through that and come up with the decision that, hey, we'll make it an added deal, we'll sit the talent with fans and the audience and we'll have a talent per table. But Dixie's comeback to that was, well, just ask which talent want to come. And we'll just use the ones that, that want to be there. Some of them probably won't want to come. Which was insulting to me and insulting to Sting. And that's me saying it was insulting to Sting, not him saying it. Um, I just thought it was shitty. But that's how they did it. So I'm laying out this little production. And guess who is the only person that shows up on time, actually early, to go over the show that day ahead of the ceremony. Sting. Oh, hell no. I thought Sting was professional. I'm sorry. He is professional, very professional. That's why he had to go to dinner with Dixie because, see, she wanted to have dinner with him. She wanted to take him out for a special dinner beforehand before they actually went to the dinner for the Hall of Fame because she wasn't going to eat that shitty chicken and shitty iced tea. Hulk Hogan, the guy that gets the bad rap for, you know, never wanting to do anything and being difficult to work with. The only guy that was there showed up early and was right there. What are we going to do? Dixie didn't show up. Dixie and Sting didn't show up till 15 minutes before we're ready to go live. And it was... Blue, it just blew my mind. It, it really did. AJ Styles showed up. He was late, but he had an excuse. He was doing an appearance. Well, at least he got there. He got there early before the show to go through his stuff. And it just absolutely blew my mind. In addition to that, uh, Al Snow, Pat Kenny, myself, Matt Conway, and Dave Lagana, we were told that they did not have enough meals to feed us. Oh, my gosh. So we couldn't eat. We could go. We could go. They were going to allow me to go as uh, senior vice president of talent relations and programming. They were going to allow me to go to the Hall of Fame dinner, but I couldn't eat because they didn't have enough meals. So I got a case and a half of beer and uh, made sure my guys were taken care of. And then we watched the Hall of Fame presentation. Where did the fans, or where did the boys sit? Did they have their own? They sat with the fans. There was like one talent per table. So a lot now, of fans at a table, and they had one talent each at their table. I'm a watch nerd. Uh, as you know, I have a watch collection, and I'm uh, silly for watches. I noticed uh, when I watched Kurt Angle's induction, uh, he was put into the TNA Hall of Fame in February of 14. And when I watch this, I notice the Rolex box. I'm going to make an observation for you. They gave Kurt Angle a used Rolex. It was not a new watch. You can tell from the box. If you bought enough Rolexes, you know that that's a box they don't use anymore. Uh, they don't look like that at all. The outer box or the inner box. And the watch they gave him is a stainless date just. Uh, now, I am not crapping on this uh, gesture at all because Vincent Mann gives people, you know, what's essentially a class ring. 
but it's the presentation and the way it's handled. It feels weird to me that they're giving guys used Rolexes. It's almost like if you can't afford a new one, give him a fucking class ring. Why would you give him a used watch? I'm not saying you know that they gave Kurt Angle a used watch. I'm just saying. They I did didn't. I wasn't there. I, I'm just but saying. I do know that Sting got a new watch. And how do you know that? Because I got it for him. So what was that process like? If we're negotiating how much chicken we're going to give the talent for free, I can't imagine this process of, of navigating what watch and which watch with Dixie Carter. Carry us through. You ever see Rocky 3? Yep. Thunderlips. Well, Clubber Lang, I will describe the process of getting the watch for Sting as Clubber Lang, Clubber Lang and Rocky Three in one word. Okay. Pain. Pain. What does that mean? You guys just... Nashville's an affluent area. There's multiple Rolex dealers. Did you guys just ride on down to King Jewelers and her, it was just her whip a com- out the it black It was a constant MX. battle of, of I want to get him a nice watch, and I have a very dear friend of mine that I've known my entire life who's a jeweler who takes very good care of me. And as you know, getting a deal on a new Rolex is tough. Yeah, and, there's a certain amount that you can get a discount on, but not much more. Rolex right. very closely monitors that resale, where some other brands they don't. Right, and and my buddy was was offering me essentially a Rolex at cost, but I had to battle with Dixie, who was looking online at used watches and things online, and as you know, and anybody that deals in Rolex, usually if you're buying a Rolex online, it is a refurbished used Rolex. Or what they would call gray market, which would be where a guy's pushing his inventory out the back door. He's been paying interest on it. He doesn't want a case queen, so now he's selling something that's technically new, but it's been in his case two years, so he'll push it out the back through a gray market, but then Rolex will not honor the warranty, and they'll even... Where tear out the warranty card. Yes, I'm a watch correct. nerd. I'm just saying. Yeah, correct. And the, and that's but that's reality, folks. If you so the word to the wise, if you buy a Rolex online, you're either getting what Conrad just described, or you're getting a used and yeah. refurbished Rolex. Yeah. Because Rolex does not authorize anybody online to sell Rolex. Correct. You got to go to an authorized dealer. And this was an authorized Rolex dealer, and and. He was giving it to me at cost, and I had to battle with, well, I saw this one online, and it was cheaper. I said, then get the one online. Right. If You know, if you like that one better, then get that one. I've got this one. It's brand new. It's got a warranty. It's got papers. It's got a brand new box. It's all brand new. It's, it's what it is. It is at cost due to a lifelong friendship <laughs> with with my buddy. And um, So you kind of go out there painful. on a limb you know, using a, a lifelong relationship you have to do the company a solid and then probably wind up looking like an asshole in this Correctamundo. Yes. Um, you know, I'm a watch nerd. Nobody listening probably cares. What model Rolex did you guys give him? I don't Steve? even remember. It was a, it was a, a stainless steel, very well, plain. Wasn't a Submariner. Oh no, no, I no. Can... It was just a, uh, they just probably they just, yes. 
Okay. Uh, well, let's let's wrap nice this. watch. Very nice Very watch. Nice and nice, watch. nice thought. Super nice gesture. I just felt like giving Kurt Angle a used Rolex is like, eh, give him a fucking ring. Um, Dixie Carter, we're here. This is what we're going to finish on. I found it interesting that, uh, and I don't know what you want to talk about with this lawsuit or don't want to talk about with this lawsuit, but in the middle of, you know, the world coming down, crashing around her in October, with the lawsuit from American Express and then from the production company and then the state tax lien and everybody just kind of jumping in there now, you know, multiple lawsuits the same week. And then things seemingly coming to a head with Billy Corgan. And then, of course, we all know the Billy Corgan lawsuit. Uh, there's just lots of back and forth and craziness. And are we going to be able to make the next pay-per-view or can we fund our next set of tapings? Is the show canceled all around Dixie in the middle of all this sends out a tweet about her action figure. And I was blown away by this and sent you a screenshot. Like, look at this shit because the timing of it just seemed ridiculous to me. Um, and you said, Hey, if you only knew. Uh, and I even saw a response uh, from Eric Bischoff on Twitter where he said, oh, if you only knew. And I know Bischoff has a lawsuit with TNA, so we're not going to talk about that. But it makes me think, hey, this is worth talking about. Uh, it's the Dixie Carter action figure. And on October 21st, right in the middle of this shitstorm, she tweets out, hashtag flashback Friday to when my action figure first came out. Get one personalized at shop TNA now. And one of the very first responses was, uh, to me that said, is this a hashtag rib? Um, it's not a rib. You were there when this action figure first came out. I want you to kind of talk about the funny story that we don't know about this action figure that Bischoff alluded to. And then I want you to kind of just assess what the fuck is going through her mind to be, to lack the level of self-awareness where in the middle of your entire company, you know, being in doubt and in question and all the talents wondering, do I have a job? Don't I have a job? All these livelihoods are on the line and you're pushing your fucking action figure on Twitter. It kind of sums it all up though. Doesn't it? I mean, doesn't that explain a lot? I've only met her in passing. Uh, I met her at a UFC event when the UFC first ran Nashville. She was there and she was super nice and hospitable. I met her once at a DNA show again, same thing. Very pleasant. Everybody says that though. She's a nice lady. She's a sweet lady. This seems like narcissism that would even make Vince McMahon blush when your fucking company's going out of business and you're, you're tweeting about your goddamn action figure little scary when that action figure first came out she had spots that she wanted run on tv where's dixie where you take a picture of of the dixie carter action figure wherever it is and it would be plugged on twitter and on tv absolutely silly i thought it was absolutely ridiculous but um we we did a retreat about this time the the where dixie campaign was going on and we Lo and behold, somebody from Nashville, so it could not have been me, 
had a Dixie Carter figure. And while we were in Cave Creek, we went ahead and shot several, um, several, several Where's Dixie locations with the Dixie action figure. And after a few beers, 30 or 90, we started sending those pictures back to Dixie and she wasn't all that happy about it, but, but we had Dixie right there drinking with us. We had, you know, we had the beer bottle and right there at, uh, the hideaway cafe in Cave Creek, Arizona, one of the, the single greatest biker bar you'll ever experience. If you ever go to Cave Creek, go to the hideaway cafe. Um, great place. But so yeah, we had Dixie all over Cave Creek and, she didn't seem to find the humor in it. So what were we you, did? What, we thought what, it was funny. What did you guys have um, the Dixie doll doing in Cave Creek? Might have done a little pole dancing. Okay. Might have had some beer. Might have had some pizza. Um, did anybody pour any sugar out into a line? No, we didn't do that. Hmm. That would be crass. <clears throat> yeah, having her dance on a pole much classier. Well, I thought so, but yeah, it was, it was just silly stuff like that, but you're, you're right. And it's, but, but again, that just kind of sums up why they're in the shape they're in. Tell me, um, of another instance you can think of this to me is just, I know I've talked about it, you know, two times now, but good Lord, you're in the middle of this shit storm and you're tweeting about your doll. Like, well, how about you're in the middle of not being able to pay your talent on a regular basis and your checks are late, two, three, four, five, six weeks late, and you're honeymooning or, or getting remarried in Ireland with your entire family, tweeting out pictures of staying in Scottish castles every night. Yeah, did that too. And I'm back in the States having to weather the storm, taking calls from guys going, what the fuck? I think you summed it up. It's it's a uh, very little self awareness and actually realizing what the hell's going on in the real world. Any other funny or interesting stories you can share with us about Dixie Carter? Let me get my shit in because I don't know when we'll talk about her again. <laughs> well, you know, no, um, I don't. I, I think we've I think we've covered. I think we we hit. We hit the point on TNA, man. I think we did it. Tune in next week. He is on Twitter at Bruce Pritchard. I'm on Twitter at Hey, Hey, it's Conrad. Throw us a follow. You'll be glad you did. And we'll see you here next week on something to wrestle with. Bruce Pritchard. Sometimes I hear voices deep inside me screaming out so loud over the silence and it's deafening, telling me what to do. Risk it all, even if you lose. It's the only
John brings his skewed sense of humor. Jeff brings tips to cut strokes off your next round. Together, it's those weekend golf guys. They'll pay a lot of money to PXG and Titleist and Callaway and on and on and on. Right? How many yards do you think you're going to pick up with that extra driver? I think I can get an extra 5 to 10. What if I give you 15 to 20? <laughs> you pay me more. Jeff Smith right? teaches on the sliding scale. <laughs> those weekend golf guys, the podcast, part of the Believe Network. Just search B-L-E-A-V on YouTube or wherever you listen.